This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Let's look up towards the cosmos, shall we, for the next hour. Prepare yourself for an auditory adventure stimulating your brain and your sense of imagination. Because for the next hour, I am once again very pleased to be joined by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. And a man who I might add has the best voice in all of radio. Steve, thank you as always for being kind enough to join me this hour. Well, good morning, Frank, and good morning to the listeners. Always great to be back on Talk Radio 77 WABC as we do at what? Another adventure and stimulate our minds on what's above. Uh, there is a great deal to cover, and we're going to try and get it in all, uh, get it all in within the next hour, and uh, we'll try and squeeze in as many phone calls as we can. If people have questions about space or anything related to space, 800-848-WABC. Uh, let me begin with a story that we touched upon a little bit the last time you were here, and that is in light of the new tensions between the Russia, you know, the Russian forces and the United States forces. I had asked what that meant for areas of of cooperation between the Russian space program and the American space program. Now, um, when we were speaking last time, you indicated you didn't think that was going to be that big of a problem. Then we saw reports that Russia was threatening to abandon American astronauts in space as uh, as these sanctions uh, threatened peace aboard the International Space Station. But apparently uh, this story has not ended in a bad place, has it? Absolutely. And I think cooler heads have prevailed, as we know, the astronauts both females and male cosmonauts and astronauts, I think they think differently and out of the box. So all we can tell everybody on this program this morning, and it's a very good story, is that there is a successful return to Earth in Kazakhstan as the American astronaut Mark Van de Hy, excuse me, returned with the two Soviet cosmonauts landing on their, with their Soyuz MS-19. That happened yesterday. And it is interesting because the NASA television channel, Frank, was covering this and people maybe out there have had the opportunity to see the whole proceedings. But it's one of the most amazing rides that, you know, I've not done it, but obviously speaking to some of the astronauts who've returned, now that SpaceX has better and, you know, more economical ways and much more luxurious ways to return to Earth, they describe the Soyuz MS-19 return, astronauts in the past, as the express elevator from hell, because you have the seven or eight minutes of time when you're burning through the Earth's atmosphere but no emphasis on burning. Their heat shield needs to protect them. So from the political side, Frank, I think we're better. I think the astronauts and, of course, both the United States and the uh, Russian government have handled this one. We have a record to talk about. Mm. And Mark Van of course, now sets the American space record of 355 days in space. That's surpassing what Scott Kelly did a while back of 340 days in space. So the other compadres that were on board the Soyuz, as Mark returned to the, uh, the good, you know, solid Earth here, Anton Shikaprilavrov and Peter Dubrov, they both returned. So everything's back to normal, at least we can say that. But as we talked last time, 
this ride back is rather tumultuous as far as, you know, the shaking and all kinds of stuff. I don't know how I would feel. How would you feel? Imagine riding that thing. That would be kind of uh, an experience, to say the least. Uh, that that it would. So he was he set the new record for being in space the longest. Is that for just American astronauts, or does that include Russian cosmonauts and everybody else, too? No, this is an American record. The, the Russians were then the Soviets. They obviously have people that have been in space well over 400 days. But it's interesting because Scott Kelly wrote a book, I believe it was called Endurance, about his time in space. And as we might have mentioned to the listeners last time we were on doing this, there is some kind of uh, strange things that happen to the body. You know, the bones tend to get uh, either they shrink, uh, there could be some issues with the heart. I mean, not fatal, we hope. But uh, we're still learning about the physiology of how astronauts would eventually go to these long-duration missions. And imagine this, as the consensus is now, when we go to Mars, whether it's Elon Musk and the SpaceX team, or whether it's a combination of other nations and NASA, we're still looking, Frank, at about a journey one way between seven to nine months. So we really need to know what the uh, medical side of the effects uh, of the human body are. Uh, by the way, on the uh, just lastly, on the America-Russia situation, sure. what do you think this means for the future of the International Space Station? That seems to be the place where there's the most cooperation between American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts. Do you think the the tensions, which even if there's a ceasefire, don't appear to be abating between our two countries anytime soon, do you think that puts potential collaboration for projects like that in jeopardy in the future? It, prob it probably does, based on the geopolitical situation. But again, listening and talking to so many of the people in the space industry on this during this you know, past couple of weeks, their hope, and so is mine, and I'm sure yours, and probably many of the listeners, of course, is that we return to this ISS, finish out the program. But I've heard all different theories on the evolution of the space uh, station, the ISS. Some say that it'll be turned into a hotel maybe in the next eight to ten years. Others say that it probably should be deorbited because it's maybe used up its uh, you know existing lifetime up there. It's quite a big object. You know, we're looking at something about the size of a football field. And I'm amazed at this, Frank, when people who have fairly large telescopes on the Earth, and I'm not talking about these giant observatory telescopes. I have friends. I don't know how to do it. I've tried it, and I can't do it. They track the ISS as it goes across the night sky, and we'll talk later in our live sky portion about how people can actually see this with the naked eye. But they're actually capturing the images. Space Station's up about 260 miles, nautical miles up. They're actually seeing the different segments and the solar panels, and one guy just got an image, how about this, of the spacewalkers outside of the ISS from the ground with a telescope that's not even that large. Wow. That's amazing. Wow, that is amazing. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you have questions. A couple of people already queuing up. Let's uh, uh, not keep these folks waiting. Let me start with Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Hi. Okay. Good, good morning, now, Bill. Uh, good morning. Once upon a time... There was a Frenchman named Lacal, and while the guillotine was chopping people's heads off, he ran away to South Africa for several years, and he drew star charts, okay? Yes. My question is, what kind of doofus names a constellation <laughs> Fornax the Metallurgical Furnace? You know, I love this, Bill. This is awesome, and here, here's the answer that I give. I get this question a lot. The Southern Hemisphere, which we don't see in the New York or in North America really that much, down here in Phoenix, we get a little bit of it. It's so incredible. John Herschel, 
the son of William Herschel, is partially responsible for this. You're right. Farnax, the furnace, there's a chisel up there in the sky. <laughs> there's there's a water clock. I haven't seen a water clock in years, have you, Bill? So there's there's so many of these constellations. It's it's almost like they ran out of imagination. But it's even more incredible, guys, and everybody listening, that they you know, we have the zodiac signs, we have all these animals and we even have a balance, Libra. But it's so incredible, Bill, you're right. Who the heck would name something like after a furnace? And there's even uh, other kind of things. There's a fly down there called Muska. Uh, there's a chameleon in the sky. I mean, it's amazing. But some of these things that they came up with, how about this? There's an air pump in the sky in the Southern Hemisphere. So I think they needed to get a little more creative. And they're very faint constellations, by the way. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Mario is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mario. Hello, gentlemen. Um I have two two brief questions. I I I read that in 2023 the the, the orbit of the moon is going to be wobbling and uh it may affect the tides on earth and there might be coastal flooding. Mm-hmm. And I also saw on the news tonight that the Voyager, if I'm not mistaken, found a new star in the constellation that may be the furthest one that they have noted? Yes, there's interesting answers. Mario, thank you for the call, and thank you for the questions. We'll go to the 2023 story about the moon. Everybody listening, Mario included, we don't have to worry. The moon is not going to do anything unusual. It's just a fact, and Frank, this is important. The moon moves away from us by centimeters a year, which is hardly noticeable. I mean, if you even look at a ruler, you know, you have to see what a small increment that is. And in terms of everything, we're talking like inches. I mean, this is a minuscule thing. So there's nothing really to worry about in the short term. The moon, as Mario was talking about, is so important to the tides on the Earth. Without it, obviously, this would be a rather boring place. But this is interesting. The Voyager spacecraft did not detect this object that we're going to talk about. The Hubble Space Telescope actually, get a load of this, just discovered and detected, this is late breaking news, the farthest star ever detected. Now, what does that mean? It's 12.8 billion light years away, which means that the star formed around 900-ish million years after the Big Bang or the Big Explosion. And astronomers have named it, interestingly enough, after one of these Gothic uh, English characters in literature called Arendelle. And what's interesting about this is, I think that's an amazing question, Mario, that you're asking, because we have yet not yet detected anything that far out into the cosmos. And guess what? The real great news is, why, where do you think, and well, what do you think, when happens with the uh, James Webb Telescope gets its hands on it, we'll be able to learn so much more. So, two interesting questions. Absolutely, Al's in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Dr. Morning, Cates. You're my favorite guest on this fine show. Well, thank uh, you. I, well, I, I appreciate all your uh, your knowledge that you're, uh, and entertainment. Yeah, thank I have two sir. brief questions. One was uh, concerning his. When you're looking from Earth, I, I understand that the Earth is four times bigger than the moon. Yes, sir. And I also understand that uh, the sun is 400 times the size of Earth. But when you look at the sky, it seems like the sun and the moon are almost the same uh, size. Is that because of that? Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Well, Al, it's interesting. The sun and the moon, thank goodness they are the same size, because if the sun was appearing to be 400 times the size of what we see the moon, I think we would be a rather what, Frank, a rather toasty day (laughs) indeed. But Al, no, being on a serious note here, that's interesting. I call this, this is something interesting. If you think back philosophically, there's something called sacred geometry here. 
And if you look at all these other planets in the solar system, why does Earth have one moon? Why does Mercury and Venus have none? Why does Jupiter have so many and Saturn many more? The interesting thing is we have something here called sacred geometry. And without it, Al, we would never be able to have the eclipses that we have. And next year, we'll talk about it in future shows, I hope, with Frank, that we're going to have in October of 2023 one of these annular eclipses where the moon is farthest away. So it's as like if you had a quarter, let's say, on the table and you put a nickel on top of it, a lot of the quarter is still visible. That's when the moon is far away, called apogee. But the most amazing one is when we have, Al, when we have the moon and the sun in the sky and the moon covers up the sun totally for a total solar eclipse. But there's nothing to worry about as far as the sun being 400 times the size, you know, of, of what we see in our sky of the moon. But you're so right, Al, from the lunar surface, as Dr. Edgar Mitchell told me in person many times, you bet you got it right. The earth would be four times the diameter of what we see a full moon. I'd love to go now. Don't you think guys, wouldn't that be fun to that, do that? It would be indeed. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about Solar Cycle 25. Uh, oh, yes. Apparently, Solar Cycle 25 is here, and right. the activity related to it is uh, increasing rapidly. What exactly is Solar Cycle 25, and what precisely is increasing with respect to solar activity? Well, every 11 and a half years, we know we go through this ebb and flow of sunspot activity, but there's really a deeper cycle of sunspot activity. But since they've been keeping track of these, we go back 11 times 25, and then we would have at least when they started to seriously look at the sun. Now, I'm privy to a solar telescope here, and I take it out as often as I can. I look directly at the sun. It's a piece of equipment you don't need. It's already got the filters built into it. So what I'm saying is I'm following this very closely, Frank. And to pass this on to the listeners, here we go. Solar cycle 25 supposedly started at the end of December of last year. Solar cycle 24 was hanging on. And solar cycle 24 was not really that strong, but it wasn't all that weak either. So what happened is solar cycle 24 was on the sun. Solar cycle 25 tried to get started, and they were fighting each other. So astronomers know that there's something called a termination event, real simple. The termination event is when one cycle ends magically and by the solar physics side, and the new one begins. But right now on the sun, and this is interesting, if people go to a website called spaceweather.com, you can follow along. Sunspot Group, Active Region 2975, is this really strange-looking, uh, it almost looks like acne would look on skin, and that's the best description I can give. But here it is. It's been pumping out M-class flares. What are those? Those are some of the medium density or intensity flares. But today, it pumped out an X-class flare. Now, what is the difference? On a, like a logarithmic scale, it's like you know 10 to the 10 to the 10. This X-class flare is a 1 out of 9. So what does that mean? It means that the sun has been belching out a couple of these flares for the past few days, and that this big flare is sending out energy. So what they're going to have, and it's actually going to strike the Earth maybe even now or into early tomorrow morning, possibility as we get a G2-class solar storm or a G3, that's pretty high, which means the northern lights may be seen farther south. But what's interesting about this, and I find this fascinating, is that this is paling by comparison to some of the great solar storms in history. We know the 1859 Carrington event was massive. If it happened today, we'd probably lose most of our satellites and all of our technology electronically. Let's go back to the Bastille Day solar storm. That was July 14th of 2000. Frank, that was an X5 flare. That's pretty powerful from an X1. And that disrupted so much communications, you know, and radio here on the Earth and all things like that. But the most prolific one, and I'm, I'm still confused about this one, it was called the Halloween flare or the Halloween event. 
October the 28th of 2003. Frank, I don't make this stuff up. It was an X45 on the scale. But luckily, the solar flare hit on the side of the sun and didn't hit the Earth directly. But there's all different types of flares. We have C-class flares, which are minimal, M-class flares, which go up in intensity, then the X flares. But there's a lot of dynamics to this whole thing. But the solar flare that's when it when came off the sunspot group, the M-class ones, a few days ago, the big one, the X one, is going to be the one that came out earlier. And they call this a cannibal event. So it's going to be a cannibal flare, meaning it's going to absorb all the energy as this big one catches up to the slower ones. And it gives us a big oomph on the Earth. Are we worried about satellites falling from the sky? Probably not. But the point is, now astronomers are saying, here we go. I always like to be positive that the next calculation that they did, well, the first calculation they did on the cycle of solar cycle 25 was moderate. Now they're saying they were probably wrong, and this one will probably be a bit more, and I put that in quotes, intense than solar cycle 24. And what does that mean we're in store for on this planet in terms of disruptions to electronics, radio signals? What does that mean for us if it is going to be uh, a bit more intense than solar cycle 24? Well, here's information coming to us as it's late-breaking news. This X-class flare, which is a one-point-something on the scale of one to nine, and as I mentioned before, some of these were like up to 45. Those are super rare, thank God. But what it can do, and it's already done this, there's an image on spaceweather.com that shows you, I believe, right now live, it shows you that the radio information in short wave has been blacked out in certain areas, and it's actually over the United States right now. And people that fly these big aircraft, you know, passenger jets that fly up over the pole, they could have a little difficulty communicating on what they call HF high frequency, uh, you know, radio frequencies, 56 on the megahertz scale on the short wave band has been blacked out. But the worst of all these is when the CME, which is a coronal mass ejection, different than a solar flare, because the solar flare travels, remember this, at the speed of light. So that happens pretty quick when it reaches the Earth. But the CME events, are much slower. They take hours, if not days, to actually get here. That's what we were talking about before with these big CMEs. But there's a big distinct difference. Flares were thought to cause CMEs, but many people believe now that the energy is stored in the solar corona in a different way, which is the outer atmosphere. The sun has an atmosphere. When I tell that to people, they go, well, wait a minute, does it have oxygen? Not that kind of atmosphere. It's a different plasma it's a strange thing. It's like the, the, the corona of the sun is way hotter than the surface of the sun. How does that happen? That's one of the great paradigms and mysteries in physics. But the bottom line for what could happen here, if you get one of these big solar flares and CMEs, radio disruptions, electronics, I mean, we could have satellites that have, you know, we're, we're such what? I don't need to remind everybody, Frank, we're such a digitally dependent world. Oh, yeah. We're at the mercy of the sun. And remember, all the weather comes from the sun. No matter what people say, pro or con on the climate change debate, all weather is produced by the sun. And the most prolific polluter of all on the planet is not the humans. And I'm not anti-climate you know, change. Obviously, that's not my point. It's that volcanic activity is still the prima facie number one thing. How do you control the carbon dioxide and all that? Like we had the Hunga Tonga explosion on the, uh, you know, the underground, the underground, the undersea volcano that spewed out and still shows us even here in Arizona, probably in the New York area and the listeners of Talk Radio 77 WABC, the look to the west and the sunsets and they're beautiful. They're full of sulfuric dust and, you know, all kind of particulates from, 
you know, natural, natural things in nature. Uh, very interesting. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll continue. If you have questions, now's the time to ask them. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, Frank Moreno here with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you want to see more of Dr. Sky's work, read more about some of the stories we're talking about. And uh, if you're interested in this subject, then do check out the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. A ton of great stuff on there. I steal show ideas from there all the time, and uh, it's a big part of my regular news consumption. You should check it out, too. KTAR.com, the Dr. Sky blog. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. One of those shows, ladies and gentlemen, where whatever you're into, we are going to scratch your itch today. If you're into space, you're going to hear a lot about space. If you're into the criminal justice system, you're going to hear a lot about that. If you're interested in gambling, you're going to hear a lot about that. If you're interested in ping pong or diplomacy with North Korea, you're going to hear a lot about that. But this hour... Uh, I am joined by not only one of my favorite guests, but uh, one of the listeners' fan favorites, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a broadcaster par excellence, somebody who has a great deal of expertise when it comes to both astronomy and space. He is what they call an edutainer. He educates us as he entertains us. Steve, um, a lot of people very eager to talk with you. Let's squeeze in a, a couple of calls here. Let me say hello to Chris on Staten Island. Hello, Chris. Yeah, I have two quick questions. Uh, two, three years ago, there were a lot of stories about uh, the true North Pole coming further south yes. than it usually does. And there was also stories about the pole swapping. But I haven't heard anything about that in the last couple of years. Are there any updates on this? Or? Interesting, Chris. Thank you for the call here, and good morning. Basically, what's happened here was a long time in history before we actually could identify what's called a magnetic pole and simply the explorers that went to the actual geographic North Pole. But I've been hearing the same thing, that every year the pole slowly moves from the North Polar position, slightly off center of that zero, you know, the total 90 degrees north. But on the other hand, there's also the changes in the magnetic field pole. And that apparently is located somewhere up in the tundra area of Canada. Not sure why it happens, but I think, again, talking about this solar situation here, a lot of things do affect the Earth, and we do go through this pole change or regression. And I think they're not to be exact, and if I don't know something, I'm always going to be honest with you and the listeners. The interesting part about this, it's thousands and thousands of years of polar shift, and I'm even small and conservative on my numbers. But if that were to happen relatively quick, that would be a bad day for everybody. Because so many things that we depend on here with the plus-minus situation, 
let's hope and pray that doesn't happen anytime soon. But Chris, appreciate the good and intellectual questions there. They're awesome. Steve, let me ask you about the X-37B. This is apparently a new a new space plane uh, courtesy of the Space Force. What do we know about the Boeing X-37, also known as the Orbital Test Vehicle? Well, this is something really strange. It goes back since April of 2010. Now, what is this? It's a little tiny, like if you looked at a miniature space shuttle, 29 feet long, 15 foot wingspan. Now, that's small compared to the shuttle, which was 122 feet long. I remember once at the Cape, we were standing there and we were getting this special tour of going out to see some of these launch sites that we haven't seen in years on a special tour where John Glenn launched, of course, going in his orbital flight. And sadly, where the Apollo 1 astronauts perished. But I was looking at a big giant stack, meaning a rocket inside a hangar. And as I'm ready to get my camera, two security people told me, lose the camera. And I said, really? And they said, yes. What was in there was the X-37B. What is it? And since Space Force, Frank, was formed back in December of 2019, now in the news, and again, we don't always believe everything we read on the internet, of course, but we're saying this is possibly true. There may be more of a military use in space for this, and for now, we're knowing that it's testing so many of these new engines. They're called xenon propulsion, very technical stuff. You know, they, blow, they, they give off like blue gas, and it's kind of cool. It's like Star Wars technology. This has been developed by Boeing and DARPA. That's the secret part of the government that does all these research projects. But get a load of this. It's on a mission right now, OTV-6, for well over 700 days. Wow. And it's very interesting. And tomorrow <clears throat> here in Arizona, and everybody can do this if you go to heavens-above.com, as I mentioned, and also at the end of the show, I hope to give everybody some opportunities of times to see, like the space station and even the X-37B, I have a couple of times for the listening area, too. But tomorrow night, and I've seen it before, it goes by real fast, but it's only a little 29-foot-long object, but it's testing something else, too. Now, this is what the government has released, of all the things that we don't know. It's solar-powered, but it's testing something with an acronym called PRAM-FX. What is it? It's turning sunlight into microwaves to be able to beam it down from space to be able to one or two things, and again, I'm not the physicist who designed this, just the one who's reporting, and hopefully from what I'm reading is accurate here, and I think it is, that it will be able to take energy in space, beam down in microwaves, so you could transmit or transport that energy down. So in other words, it's like a solar energy collector where you could beam it microwave-wise to another destination and download it, like a wireless transmission on your, on your phone. That's great technology. But this little thing is interesting. Now, the nefarious side of this, some speculate, and again, I don't know if it's totally accurate, just reporting what I've read, and again, it could be incorrect, that there could be a military use of this, where this could be utilized in space warfare, God forbid, if we had to destabilize or take down other spacecraft that were hostile, and again, we weren't drawing first blood. So more to say about it, it's just an incredible piece of technology and it has a little tiny cargo bay in the back. But if you looked at it, if people go out and Google it, it's the coolest little thing. It, and it lands, it, it takes off in a rocket, on top of a rocket, but it lands on a runway just like a space shuttle did. Kind of cool. Uh, very cool. I mean, the thing that's so interesting about it, the mission is 700 days? Yes, and it's autonomous. Interesting. So it, let's imagine this. Out at uh, Creech Air Force Base, where's that? If people drive just to the west as they head up toward, you know, from Las Vegas to, to Reno. I've passed it many times, Creech Air Force Base. I don't see a lot of airplanes coming out of there. 
It's where primarily, and I'm not revealing any, revealing any you know, national secrets here, there are a number of these around the world, they use the Predator drones and the other global hawks there, and there's people that sit in the control room, and again, if anybody out there has a real fascination with video games and they're looking for employment, could you imagine that would be a great place to go because it's like playing a big video game. So I imagine this X-37B is also controlled somewhat. It's also autonomous, that you can actually sit there and tell it to do things and uh, how about the technology? That's pretty bizarre. Mm, uh, that is for sure. 800-848-WABC. Let's say hello to Janet in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Hi. Thank you, Frank. I have a question I've been wondering about for years. It's about radio and the sun. Why is it that when the sun goes down, I can get like, they say you can get 38 stations. I get about sure. 30. If I had a better radio, uh, I could hear, I hear stations from Canada. I'm in New York. Sure. You know, I can pick up two, two uh, stations from, from Ontario. Mm-hmm. What is it? And why does it affect AM only? There's not a single FM station that I can get at night that I can't get during the day. Sure. So the question really is, what does the sun do during the day when it's up there that interferes with all these radio signals that sure. I can get at night? Great question. Well good, well, good morning, John. And here's the basic answer. In the daytime, the sun is stimulating with its, you know, photons, light energy particles, and it's affecting what we call the ionosphere, which is this other layer of the Earth's atmosphere. So at night, it generally will calm down. And when radio stations, a lot of them, like we have here in Phoenix, out there in New York, anywhere around the country, some of these radio stations, right, Frank, are 50,000-watt clear channels. So they broadcast at night. You know, you can hear what, Frank, WABC? I, can, I remember oh. hearing them once all the way down in uh, Arkansas when I was driving once at night. Seriously. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, we get calls from all over the country. In oh, fact- no. I'm sure it's even more powerful. Uh, uh- but, but, Janet, this is interesting. What happens is the changes in that ionosphere, because it's reflective, so at night, these stations that are not as powerful, or let's say the big ones, are able to be heard because their signal can be bounced off the top of this ionosphere, and it's not being affected by the daytime uh, you know, radiation that's coming from the sun, which, which changes the whole dynamic of the whole ionosphere. So, hey, I'm a big fan of all these radio stations. I remember, just like many out there, when I was a kid, obviously listening up and growing up in New York, listening to WABC, of course. But at night, I could pick up stations all the way down, and I think there was a really funny one, right, Frank and Janet? Down in Del Rio, Texas, or even in Mexico, it was called X-Rock 80. And oh, I think yeah. Wolfman Jack used to broadcast, and I think they alleged to have 150,000 or more watts, which was, what, illegal in the U.S.? Exactly. But you could hear them all the way to Jupiter. <laughs> exactly. Uh, great question, Janet. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. We've been hearing a lot about the James Webb Space Telescope, and um, a caller called me on Friday, and he asked... And I, you know, I gave the most ham-handed explanation and said I would ask you about this. Uh, yes. He asked for some clarification over the reports that he's seen, and I think other people have seen as well, that the James Webb telescope could allow us to see what happened thousands of years ago in the past in yes. different parts of the galaxy or maybe even in other galaxies. I'm wondering if you can give us an update on the James Webb Telescope in general and explain that concept to people. How are Absolutely. we uh, potentially going to see things, or events, uh, structures that lived and existed thousands of years ago? Well, it's a great question. And, and to give that person an answer, everybody, This amazing telescope has pretty much been flawless. I mean, here we are about a million miles away from the Earth itself. 
sitting in this little orbit that's out there at one of those L2 points, you know, the so-called stabilized point. Now all the mirrors are aligned, and the first image comes through of a non-discrete star where you can see the thing is perfectly in alignment. But remember, this telescope is more of an infrared instrument. So what we're trying to say is to answer the question is that when the universe allegedly expanded, I like the word expansion better than explosion, because an explosion indicates that if we were here, we weren't, where did the explosion happen? It didn't happen near the Earth. It happened out there somewhere in time and space. But the point is, the James Webb Telescope will be able to peer deeper and deeper and deeper into the past because the ability of its mirror, remember, it's 21 feet in diameter made up of these individual hexagonal mirrors that are gold-plated, I mean, gosh, this thing's incredible and incredibly expensive. Simply, without a lot of words, it will be able to peer back because of the ability for it to go deeper and deeper into what we call magnitude. Remember, the faintest star you can see with the naked eye in really dark locations, depending on your eyesight, if you have good eyesight with no corrective lenses, is a plus six. These telescopes, like here in Arizona and other places, the large telescopes on the mountains, they can push down to plus 32, which is amazing, meaning I'm seeing deeper and deeper into the past. So James Webb, I can't only imagine. I mean, I'm making this part up. Maybe it can see plus 50s, but it means it'll get closer to seeing when that Big Bang explode, or excuse me, expanded. But the question that one of the listeners had before was about this object, and I mentioned the Hubble Space Telescope just detected the farthest star and it picked one up at 12.8 billion light years, only 900 or so thousand years after the uh, expansion. So can you only imagine how deep this one should be able to go back? Almost to the beginning of the expansion, we hope. So basically, the, some of the images that the because of the speed of light, because um, some of the images that the James Webb telescope or the Hubble telescope sees of stars are of stars that aren't still there. It's just taking a while for the light of that star to yes. reach the James Webb Telescope or the Hubble Telescope? Yeah, it's a good analogy. And I think if you look at it this way, Frank, this is important for the listeners to know. If you look back, I doubt we'll be able to see 13.8 billion years to the explosion or the expansion. But the point is, those, those objects have been, the light's been traveling so far, that's how long it took to get here. So you're right. It, those objects may not even exist in time and space mm. right now. Because if you look at the speed of light, and again, not the conductive physics class here on the show, but the important part is, we were told in school, 186,282 miles per second. That means nothing to me. I mean, think about it. Most people, if you're driving your car, you go, what does that mean? Here's what the <laughs> speed of light is in miles per hour. So I said this funny to a couple of people. You ever get pulled over by a police officer, a man or a woman, and you were speeding, maybe you can talk yourself out of a ticket and say, ah, I wasn't going that fast. Well, you, officer or man or sir, do you know how fast the speed of light is in miles per hour? <laughs> and they may think you're a wise guy or a wise woman, but here's the answer. The speed of light compared to how fast you are going over the speed limit, get a load of this, folks, is 670 million miles per hour. Wow. Wow. That means a lot, doesn't it, versus the 186,282 miles per second, which I can't understand. Now, do we have any idea if when we look up at the night sky with the naked eye right now, for instance, do we have any idea if the stars that we're seeing in the night sky are still there or are just the the light from stars that may have existed long ago? Well, they're all it's a time machine. So we go out here like in our skies, in New York skies, the WABC listening audience skies. Anytime you look at a star, let's take one. In the evening sky, if you look toward the south sunset, no matter where you're listening, the brightest star in the heavens is a star called Sirius. 
It's you know, 8.611 light years away. I know that because we talk about it all the time. We're pretty sure that that star more than likely is still there. But think about it. The light left 8.611 years ago. But look at some of these other objects. The farthest object, Frank, that you basically can see with the naked eye or with a pair of binoculars is the Andromeda galaxy. And that, on even I've, I've even seen it from the, the Central Park, and I'm not kidding, with a pair of binoculars. You have to look carefully. That object's 2.4 million light years away. So it's problematic that with the farther distances, maybe those objects are not there. Who knows? But with the near things, the bright stars that you see at night, the distances range anywhere up to at least 1,000 light years. They're probably still there, but maybe even they're on their way out, too. We don't know. Uh, very interesting. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Paul is in Yonkers. Paul, you're on with Steve Cates. Frank, I know we call on another subject. I'm retired NYPD detective, 35 yes, years sir. experience, two master's degrees. I had the pleasure of interviewing Walter Andrus of MUFON about 10 years ago. And I've interviewed thousands. He wasn't lying. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't looking for attention. I was curious what your uh, guest opinion of MUFON in general and Walter Andrus in particular. Are. That's the uh, Mutual UFO Network yes, for people right. that don't know. Yes, sir. Well, Paul, thank you for your service first. But let me say this. This is interesting. If you look at this whole perspective here, I certainly have had my time behind the microphone, like Frank's doing a great job and everybody else that does this as a, as a profession. And I've had the honor of interviewing so many of these people. And let me say this, MUFON, I've had them side by side when we've had many presentations. We did a whole thing with the History Channel on the Project Blue Book. I think that's a great organization to go out there and help identify in a way that probably most people are not even aware of thousands and thousands of UFO sightings. We don't know. And I'm always open. You know, I've never met an extraterrestrial. I don't know what I would do if I did. But the reality is, I think they're a good organization that really, truly uh, lays it on the line. And now, as the whole change of UFOs, I mean, it's now called what? UAP is an identified aerial phenomenon. And I'm really interested. Uh, and I'd like to read more of what MUFON's doing or even have us a say about these Tic Tacs that Navy F-18 pilots have seen uh, over the last decade and probably even more that we don't know about. So I think they're a good organization that's doing a good public service to keep the idea alive that we're probably not alone in this universe. Uh, speaking of stargazing, as the whether it's tonight or going forward in the coming weeks, what is exciting in the night sky these days? What can people see with the naked eye? What can they see yes. with binoculars? What can they see with the telescope? Great question, Frank. Live sky is what we talk about, what people can see. So here, folks, I'll say it twice, because if you want to jot this down, it might be of interest to you. The International Space Station will pass over the New York listening area in the East Coast on, on March the 31st, which is tonight for everybody there, of course, March the 31st, the last day of this month. And what will it be coming out of the sky, out of the northwest sky, moving to the east at 8.32 p.m. So if your skies are clear... Just remember, the best information you'll get on this is to go to heavens-above.com, plug in your city, if it's not the New York listening area, or wherever, of course, WABC is proudly heard around the country. It'll be bright, about as bright as Jupiter, which is pretty darn bright, and you'll be able to see it sail across the sky. It'll be an impressive sight. And then if you miss that, on April the 2nd, which I believe is Saturday, Saturday evening, an even brighter pass, moving from the northwest to the southeast at 8.33 p.m. local time, this is... East, Eastern Daylight Time, it nearly gets overhead 
at 8.33 p.m. in the evening. This one is about as bright as Venus gets in the sky. And remember, it's moving 17,000 miles an hour, and you're seeing it uh, about 260 miles from where your eyeballs are up to the sky. And then on Friday evening, we actually have something else. The X-37B, probably need a pair of binoculars for this if you have a dark sky. City dwellers, obviously, it's going to be a little difficult. 7.47 p.m., the object will be moving toward the south. And actually, the easiest way to see this, it goes right under the brightest star in the sky, which is down in the south-southwest at sunset, the bright star Sirius. So I would train my binoculars on Sirius right around 7.46 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And if you see something moving from the left to the right, you'll be seeing, excuse me, from the right to the left, I should say, excuse me, you're seeing the X-37B, the little tiny 29-foot-long spacecraft moving across the sky. And that's uh, only the beginning. Uh, so that's, pretty, that's pretty neat. Uh, and yeah. Now, in terms of um, in May, I understand that there's actually a possibility of a string meteor shower. Yeah. What is a string meteor shower? Well, this is something off the charts here. And this, this news just came to me the other day, and that's why I thought it'd be great for the listeners to hear it. Every once in a while, as these comets, all meteor showers come from comets. Now, there was this comet that's going around the sun every 5.4 years. It's called Comet swassman Walkman Three. two individuals. To, that's their two last names. It was discovered back in May of 1930. And what's happened to this comet, it's not even a, ph- a phenomenally bright comet. The comet split up. In 1995, literally, the nucleus got so violently shaken by the solar wind, it just cracked up. And in 2006, astronomers determined that it came up to about 68 pieces are flying around out there. So here's what they're saying, and I say this with caution. If you have a clear sky on the night of May 30th into the 31st, and we'll talk about this hopefully in more detail as it comes up, there could be a rather interesting but short-lived meteor shower, maybe a storm, And we haven't had one of these for a long time. And this could be interesting, Frank, because it's called the Tau Herculid meteor shower, the Greek letter Tau. Hercules, the constellation, will, of course, get you more details as this this develops. But if that's true, and I've seen some of these strange little meteor showers, not the regular ones like the Perseids, the Orionids. These come every so often. And just remember, the most amazing meteor shower that was probably recorded in North America was on the morning of November the 16th, 1966. I didn't live in Arizona then. I was a proud New Yorker, as I still am. And down in southern Arizona in Tucson, the Leonid meteor shower did something weird. At around 5.30 in the morning, people were on top of the mount uh, where the big telescope at Kitt Peak is. And they were pretty much given up because the night wasn't that great with meteors. Now, I didn't make this stuff up at all. Between about 5.30 in the morning and 6 a.m., there were 500,000 meteors an hour seen for about 20 minutes. Now, that would have been one show to see. It was like as if you were driving through a blinding snowstorm at 100 miles an hour, which you don't do. Can you imagine seeing all that coming out of the sky at one time? That was amazing. I I can't imagine. That must have been something. 800-848-WABC. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. Meantime, if you want to uh, look into some of the issues we're talking about and see the Dr. Sky blog, you can find that at KTAR.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. Brighter than a lucky penny when you're near the rain goes, disappears, dear. And I feel so fine just to know that you are mine. My life is sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. That's how this ring This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, chatting this hour with one of our favorite guests. We will take your calls at uh, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. In terms of uh, anything related to space, astronomy, the stars, the moon, you name it, now's the time. Steve, you know, uh, I was uh, talking with a friend of mine a couple hours ago, and I mentioned some upcoming plans that I have on uh, April 16th. And she said, oh, you better be careful that day. It's a full moon. And, and it, led me to, it led me to thinking of the question, why do people tend to freak out when there's a full moon? Or uh, uh, charitably, why do they act a little oddly at times when there's a full moon? Or is that well, just sort of a, a myth created by werewolf novels? Well, it's actually both. And the wolf thing is called lycanthropy, which is like, you know, howling at the moon. So many sci-fi movies around that, the wolfman, dot, dot, dot. But it's interesting, Frank, the gravitational pull that the moon has. Ask many women, many of that are, you know, ready to give birth. They've also said that they felt a little different at the time when the moon's gravity was pulling because it's a tidal thing, maybe in a micro scale, too. But it's so incredible. This moon that we're talking about in April will be the full pink moon. And it also heralds in the season of Passover, obviously, and the seasons of Easter. And if we look at the calendar, the actual date of Easter, it's very interesting how it's fixed. And I hope I get this right, because people ask me all the time. It's the first full moon after the first Sunday after the vernal equinox. So since the March 20th date was the vernal equinox, the next full moon, which occurs right after that, that is the next Sunday, is after the date of April the 16th. That is the full pink moon. And voila, what do you get? On the date of the Sunday, the 17th, we have the date of Easter. But April, Frank, is going to be an interesting month, too, because it's rather strange. There's many things to see in the sky we didn't finish. There's two new moons. April 1st is a new moon. Then there's one on April the 30th. There's a partial solar eclipse somewhere in the world. We won't see it in this listening area. But then we have another thing going on with planets. This is fascinating. If you get up in the morning, look into the east. We've talked about it for months. Venus, still the dominant planet, the brightest of all. But what's happening is on April the 4th, you'll see this if you have a pair of binoculars better. Mars and Saturn will come within a quarter of a degree together. That's a significant conjunction. And that hasn't happened since 1779 that close. And the next one will be in the year 2949 A.D. But we got the best for last. On the morning of April 30th, this is a don't miss this one. Venus, so bright, and Jupiter, very bright, not as bright as Venus, will come together with the diameter of about that of a full moon on the morning of April 30th. And that's a beautiful sight. That's also going back into like biblical history as some of the answers to what the magical star of Bethlehem was. As we know, the three wise men and their travels, that has a lot to do. And it's very philosophic and I think very beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, no, that sounds uh, that sounds terrific. All right. A lot of folks queuing up to chat with you. If you want to jump on board, we have four lines open, 800-848-9222. Nick is in Whippany, New Jersey. Hello, Nick. Oh, hi, Frank. How are you doing? Yeah. Good morning. I'm going to try to phrase my question so that I can make sense with it. 
okay, uh, you were saying that when you look into the sky and look at, into the stars, you're looking into the past. Well, my yeah. question is, when the star is sh- is shining, if the star's light goes out, does the light continue to the earth or does the light stop immediately? Like you can't really tell like if you shine a laser because it's right. instantaneous. Like, but when, if the light cuts off from, say from our sun, if the light cuts mm-hmm. off from our sun, does it stop to us instantaneously? Because from the earth to the sun, the light should continue for another eight minutes. Right. So You're absolutely that, right. Well, Nick, good morning. That, and thank, thank you for these questions and concerns. Yeah. You're right. If the sun were just to turn off, you know, like a light bulb, yeah. It would have happened eight and a half minutes before because it takes eight and a half minutes for the light to get from the sun to the earth. But when you're looking at these stars, Nick, this is interesting. Let's say whatever you see in the night sky, that's the way they were at the time that the distance factors involved. So in other words, let's take Sirius, the bright star we talked about, 8.6 light years away. That light left 8.6 years ago, to make it very simple. Of course, everybody understands that. But we don't know. Let's say something happened in real time from our perspective on Sirius, as we call it, our time now. We wouldn't know about it for another 8.6 years, meaning if the star exploded or it disappeared. So the farther you go back, that's how long the light has been traveling to get to your eye. Don't know if it's still there now. Very good question. Thank you, Nick. Ted is in Forest Hills. Hello, Ted. Thanks. God bless you. It's always a pleasure. I wanted to ask the doctor, are the yes, Mars sir. explorers, uh, you know, the one with the helicopter, mm-hmm. uh, still working? Yes, they are. And it's interesting. Perseverance has done a, no- a yeoman's job of being able to do so much great science. But even more interesting, the answer is yes to both. This particular little tiny drone is flying in an atmosphere that's nothing like that of Earth. And it's done amazing things. Little ingenuity we had, Frank, on our show and Nick. Out here in Arizona, the, the the people that were the project directors of that, and I'm still baffled how they can get that thing to fly. But the little secret they told me, guys, is that the speed of the propeller is much, much greater than what you would have naturally here on the Earth because of the lack and changes of atmospheric pressure. They're still working and a lot more science to come. Mm, uh, interesting. Bob in Queens. Hello, Bob. Hey, how you doing, doctor? Uh, morning, I, I feel on a lot of these shows... Uh, they talk about expansion and how the universe may end and quiet and dark. And then I see other shows where they say that Andromeda is on a collision course with the Milky Way galaxy yes. one day. I was just on, trying to understand how they, everything could be expanding away from each other and then the two galaxies can still be heading towards each other. That's one of the best questions we've ever had, Bob. And this is interesting, Frank, what he's talking about. You know, this is interesting when we talk about the Andromeda galaxy. I mentioned before, 2.4 million light years away. But what's going to happen to that as everything's moving along, these objects have different differential speeds anyway. So our galaxy is turning around like this big you know, hurricane or a cyclone. It's, we go around in the orbit there every 260 million years. That's another one. But what's happening is, and this is pretty specific, I mean, God help us, this is a long time in the future. We have a lot of things to prepare for, right, Frank? Four billion years from now, the Milky Way will be attacked or hit by the Andromeda galaxy and then it will merge together as it destroys so many stars. That's going to be a pretty violent thing. Sorry, folks. It'll be called the Milcomita Galaxy. But again, Bob and Frank and everybody listening, I don't think we have too much to worry about. <laughs> but, no, but on a serious note, since everything seems to be expanding, 
there are differential speeds within that. So things can actually move at a little different rate and velocity, but yet everything is moving outward. Interesting. Okay. Great question, Bob. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Uh, Steve, I have to ask you about this story. Uh, some people might think it's a little outlandish, but uh, let me run it by you anyway. A um, Dr. David Jacobs, a professor of at Temple University, He's written a number of books on alien abductions. He's interviewed supposed subjects about their experiences. And the Daily Star has an article today saying that he claims to have formed a sinister conclusion from their testimony, which is at least the way the Daily Star puts it. And I've invited him on the show. I've yet to hear back. He's a professor of history, not astronomy or, or anything like that. He um, believes that aliens abducting are abducting humans on Earth before a full invasion. Um, have you have you seen this reported? And what, if anything, is your take on this? Well, I've read this report, Frank, and I find that interesting. And I want to do all due respect to the good Dr. Jacobs. I respect his opinion. But I think the problem in this country and I think around the world today is the demonization of debate. You know, a lot of times people want to debate subjects and one side screaming at the other, let them speak. But the reality is, from my perspective from astronomy, unless I'm one of the invaders with Roy Thinnes on television, where similarly that was exactly what happened. You know, the craft came and right. they took over human bodies. I don't know. I mean, I've talked to so many abductees. I don't know. I you know, I haven't met anybody. But I think the closest on a funny note that I've ever come to what somebody might be a hybrid or somebody that's like, you know, coming back from another world was the person I met at the gas pump the other day. <laughs> and they weren't too happy. But that's another story. But I don't know, Frank. That's one that I have to give a heck of a lot more thought to. But it's like the X-Men. Who, who was the character in there? I think it was a female uh, part of the X-Men or something. That She was like the hybrid that turns blue. Shape-shifting. So I don't know all about that. Uh, well, we'll have to uh, keep an eye on that. And uh, again, hopefully Dr. Jacobs will accept my yes. invitation. Steve, as always, the hour has just flown by. Thank you so much for the time this morning. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and good morning to all. Thank you. Be sure to check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. I'll look forward very much to our next conversation. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So... I read an article in The Atlantic right before the show, and and I try to avoid reading a lot of articles in The Atlantic because this is one of those publications where it gives you something like four or five free articles a month, and once you eclipse them, then you're not able to access anything. So I'm always very careful about accessing whatever articles they publish because I don't want to eclipse my my quota for the month. But there was just something about this headline that struck me as interesting. I said, let me read it. And I'm glad I did. It's a wonderful article by Olga Kazan. And I actually think I might invite Olga Kazan on this uh, on this radio program because 
I was so into this article that I looked her up and I became a fan of some of her other writing. I actually ordered one of her previous books. So I'm looking forward to hopefully having a conversation with her on the radio. But whether she comes on or not, the the piece is worth reading. And I've linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash moranofan. Uh, that's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. Here's the headline. Why people are acting so weird. And the sort of the subheadline says crime, unruly passenger incidents and other types of strange behavior have all soared. Why? And I found that to be such an interesting question. Listen to the how this story begins. And again, you could read the whole thing on my Facebook. Everyone is acting so weird. The most recent obvious the most obvious recent weirdness was when Will Smith smacked Chris Rock at the Oscars. But if you look closely, people have been behaving badly on smaller stages for months now. Last week, a man was arrested after he punched a gate agent at the Atlanta airport. The gate agent looked like he was about to punch back until his female colleague stood on some chairs and said no to the entire situation. Uh, That wasn't even the viral jerk on a plane video that week, meaning there's a lot of those. In February, people found ways to throw tantrums while skiing. Skiing! In one viral video, a man slid around the chairlift boarding area of a Canadian resort, one foot strapped into his snowboard as he flailed at security guards and refused to comply with a mask mandate. Separate footage shows a maskless man on a ski shuttle screaming, there's nobody wearing masks on any bus in this GD town, before calling his fellow passenger a liberal piece of blank and storming off. During the pandemic, disorderly, rude, and unhinged conduct seems to have caught on as much as bread baking and Bridgerton. Bad behavior of all kinds, everything from rudeness and carelessness to physical violence, has increased. As the journalist Matt Iglesias pointed out in a Substack essay earlier this year, Americans are driving more recklessly, crashing their cars, and killing pedestrians at higher rates. Early 2021, for instance, saw the highest number of unruly passenger incidents on airplanes and so forth ever, according to the FAA. In February, a plane bound for Washington, D.C. had to make an emergency landing in Kansas City, Missouri, after a man tried to break into the cockpit. And here's my question for you. Why? Why are people throughout society behaving so weirdly? Or are they? Is this just uh, a function of more weird behavior being caught caught on cell phone video because everyone's got a, a camera and a movie studio in their pocket? Why are people acting so weird? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. Healthcare workers say their patients are behaving more violently. At one point, Missouri hospitals plan to outfit nurses with panic buttons. Schools, too, 
are reporting in an uptick in disruptive behavior. Chalkbeat reported last fall. In the 2020, in 2020, the U.S. murder rate rose by nearly a third, the biggest increase on record. Then it rose again in 2021. Car thefts spiked 14% last year. Carjackings have surged in various cities. And if there was a national tracker of school board meeting hissy fits, it would be heaving with data points right now. What on earth is happening? How did Americans go from clapping for health care workers to threatening to kill them? So she spoke with more than a dozen experts on crime, psychology, and social norms to get their take on some possible explanations. But I don't want to hear from the experts. I want to hear from you. Why do you think people are acting so weird? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. She spends a lot of time exploring one possible explanation. I'll tell you what it is in a second. And it kind of makes sense. So it could be as simple as that. I'll tell you what it is. But I do want to tell you, coming up in about 15 minutes, uh, we're going to talk with Richard Luthman. Some of you might remember Richard Luthman from when he was on the front page of the New York Post as the trial by combat attorney. He was an attorney who uh, actually challenged another attorney to a trial by combat. Additionally, uh, he had a whole bunch of other media-making cases in which uh, he was all over the news for. And uh, then he ultimately ended up getting arrested uh, for kidnapping and for a scrap metal scheme and for having fake Facebook pages. So he has some very big news. This is going to be his first radio interview, as I understand it, since leaving prison, uh, coming up in about 15 minutes. But why are we acting so weird? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I'll give you the explanation that a lot of experts that this writer spoke to offers. And then I'll hear yours. One likely explanation for the spike in bad behavior is the rage, frustration, and stress coursing through society right now. Uh, When Christine Porath, a business professor at Georgetown, collected data on why people behave in rude and or uncivil ways, the number one reason by far was feeling stressed or overwhelmed. Is there more to it than that? What do you think? 800-848-WABC. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Good morrow. Um, I see it firsthand, and I personally think it's from COVID. Uh, my wife, you know I told you, had it very bad. And my wife is the most docile person you would ever want to meet, Frank. And lately, after she had COVID for the past year, uh, I've noticed, my kids have noticed, that she's snapping at us. Um, she's, she gets very unstable and then she'll be fine. And then it goes back and forth and she was never this way. And I, I had COVID mildly and I sometimes feel, and it's weird. Like I'll feel not my normal self, but I'll like, I'll, I'll take a couple of breaths and I'll try to collect my thoughts. And also I kind of believe that it is stress because a lot of people are stressed out about paying the bills. Uh, gas prices, and you feel like you're closed in. But a lot has to do, I think, is with the isolation, with the lockdowns, and I think COVID 
because a lot of people I talk to, Frank, are going through this. Have a good night. Well, thank you, Joe. The thing that I wonder about what you say there, um, the second part, and the theory put forth by a lot of people here that stress is to blame is, look, we've experienced other instances of mass stress before. I mean, you remember the early 2000s. We had a recession. We had a terrorist attack on American soil, massive terrorist attack. And then two wars, uh, which people were concerned about. Also, the anthrax scare. All that happened right around to be stressed about. If we're not stressed about getting blown up by uh, terrorists, we're stressed about getting anthrax in the mail. If we're not stressed about uh, getting anthrax in the mail, it's, uh, you know, our troops in harm's way in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and there have been a lot of other stressful times in history. I won't dispute that there's there's a lot going on right now. but. I feel like there have been other instances where there's been a lot of stress in society and we didn't see this degree of bad behavior, did we? I think it might be more than that. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. Patrick is calling from Tennessee. Hello, Patrick. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Um, I think most of real close to why people are becoming less civil. Um, look at the conditions. I mean, not the conditions, but look at the way the government is changing. Their, their people's purchasing power is eroding. I think it's a combination of fear and stress that's causing people to be a little touchy. <laughs> so a combination of fear and stress. Yeah. All right. Well, look, that's as good of an explanation as I've come up with. Mark in Westchester, why are people acting so weird? Uh, Frank, I think in all honesty, it's because you can get away with it now. Sometimes when somebody steps on your shoe, you would let it go because you don't want to be arrested for causing a scene. Nowadays, it's proper to smack somebody who doesn't agree with you. And there is no, um, you know, you're not going to be arrested. You're not going to be thrown into jail. And everybody right now is actually doing things they used to only think about doing. And now they're actually making it happen. And it's disgusting. Thank you, Mark. One of the other theories put forth in this article, and look, it's not necessarily separate from the stress, the stress theory, is that people are drinking more. People have been coping with the pandemic by drinking more and doing more drugs. We know that. That's statistics. That's And that's why we're seeing more deaths due to alcohol. We're seeing more deaths due to drug overdoses. So some people are saying the fact that so many more people are drunk all the time is leading to aberrant behavior. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Edward is in St. James. Edward, which St. James are you in? On Long Island, sir. Ah, yes, yes. Uh, I'm sure that's a community we're going to have to change the name of eventually. Well, it's a a township of Smithtown and uh, Nessaquag. My wife's from Suffolk County. I'm very familiar with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, but the the reasons are are many. I mean, right now, because of the um, people closed up with COVID and... um, you know, the the economy being uh, shut down. Uh, and I think a lot has to do with people 
um, the stimulus checks being granted, people are saying, well, why should I go to work? You know, I'm being granted this money. Uh, I'm just going to, uh, you know, freelance. And it's not going back into the um, into the, the till, if you will, I, um, you know, uh, that. And, but, uh, but I mean, but Jim, we're seeing bad behavior from people. I mean, people like Will Smith, for instance. I mean, could you have pictured a, a star at the Academy Awards slapping another comedian uh, five yeah. years ago? I mean, it would have been unheard of. No, or I, or I these can't. members of Congress, um, you know, booing and jeering the president during the State of the Union. I mean, uh, Congress. I want, to, I want to add to that. Yeah. I think that's that's a that's a big case that should be addressed. And people are, are um, they're hemming and hawing about this. This is a case of assault and battery uh, on both cases of Chris Rock and uh, on uh, Will Smith. You know, one made banters that he shouldn't have because of uh, Will's, Will's wife, which sadly had this medical condition. And now um, um, uh, Will Smith attacking the man and striking him. And both. So the Academy Award says, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to do something about that. But no, this needs to be addressed on a lawful level. And that's all I have to say. About all right. That. Thank you. Uh, Riley is in East Orange. Riley, why are people acting so weird? Um, the people were, um, what do you say? You know, they were conscious of themselves being antisocial. And then the government implement this antisocial um, thing on them. They must stay six feet apart. You know what I mean? It's the same thing that kill up the people in the, in the, in the, um, the old, the, what call it? With the older folks, you know, they didn't make any contact with nobody in Corona. It was a stress, you know, the six feet, you know, and then everybody under that pressure. When, when, a, when a rubber ball is pressured one way, it goes repulse back. You, you know, so, Riley, you're back. saying it's a reaction it's, it's a reaction to the lockdowns? Yeah, it's cause and effect. You know, just um, social distance is no such thing. Social distance means enmity. That's the only thing social distance can mean. Yeah, fair enough, Riley. Nick is in Manhattan. What do you think, Nick? Frank, love your show. Thank you for uh, putting me on. I I think that uh, COVID certainly contributed to it. COVID also led to, uh, according to the reporting, you know, some alcoholism, drug use uh, increasing. And I think that we're divided politically and mm. socially. And, uh, you know, the media and social media contribute to that. And they also contribute in that these events are, are ce- almost celebrated. You know, the, these crazy things that happen, like, the, like I mean, I, don't, I hate to bring it up again because everyone's been talking about it for days. But this Will Smith thing happens. You could have watched it. I mean, you could literally sit and watch that video a thousand times if you just keep changing the channel. It's, it's insane. You know, there's no consequences for it. And, and it's like, so you, you know, think you, know, you it, think it, it, it's not just COVID, it's not just the stress of COVID. This is interesting. You think the political polarization plays a role and the, the divisive nature of social media plays a role. What 100%. Like I said, these, this, these incidents, whether it's on a plane, whether it's Will Smith, these incidents, are, they're, 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 they're pounded into our brains on social media. Everyone shares them. And and like I said, it, it's uh, they're, they're almost these incidents are almost celebrated. It, it's a, it's a sad situation. Let me ask you this, Nick, because I'll be honest, yeah. I think you're onto something here. Do you think we'll ever get back to normal, or do you think this is the new normal uh, that where weird behavior is here to stay, essentially? 
I, I unfortunately, I think I think it is because uh, where uh, you know, like I said, particularly social media and the media are uh, almost in uh, in their reporting of these things are almost pr- promoting, you know, what what's happening. And uh, unless our politicians and 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 the and celebrities and the people that we look up to in society uh, change, you know, do something about it. This is unfortunately, I think it is going to be the norm because, yeah. uh, you know, no, nobody's really uh, obviously people think it's wrong what's happening. But, uh, you know, but uh, the, the way things are going for, for, for temporarily, at least. Hopefully not for too long, but I think it is the norm, unfortunately. So. Uh, I hope you're wrong, Nick, but it's a great analysis. Thank you. Ed is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Hello, Ed. Hi, Frank. I noticed something about all of your callers, and I noticed something about whenever this topic is broached. It's always something external. And my view of human nature is all virtue is based on self-restraint. Even firefighters who run into burning buildings. That virtue is based on they're restraining the ability to think of themselves or or to protect themselves. And I got to say, we don't live in a time that 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 values that we live in a time that if you practice self-restraint, you're a loser. You're an idiot. So what changed and when did it change? It's been changing for decades. Um, I, I think one thing that has changed is that just doesn't occur to people. People just don't consider that anymore. They don't value it. I mean, for example, I can't listen to NPR anymore. I haven't listened to them for a couple of years. We have two NPR stations in Boston. And I finally today decided to, to listen to each one for about five minutes. Each, I listened to one story on each of those two stations. And you know what the commonality of the two stories was? Lack of resources. Lack of funding. It's not, you know what, maybe you need to set higher standards for yourself. It's always someone else's fault. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Ed. That's, uh, pretty, I'm hearing some very interesting theories, much better than some of the theories put forward by the so-called experts in this article. I'm not taking anything away from the article. It was well written. And again, you could read it. Just go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. I'm just scratching the surface here. It's it's worth reading the whole thing. Uh, let's say hello to your fellow Bay Stater, Jennifer in Boston. Hello, Jennifer. Hi there, Frank. Hi, Ed from Worcester. Always a brilliant mind. Love him. Um, it, Frank, I think a lot of it is just really we're a very self-oriented society. What, and we're also we want instant gratification, whatever feels good. We there's very little consequence in society for for the worst of of actions. You look at those two uh, girls, thirteen and fourteen. I think they were about a year ago that killed the Indian man. Um, he was from India. His family was here, yep, and he was yep. delivering for like Uber Eats or whatever. They tried to steal his car, killed him, and that's all the girl wanted was to get her phone out of the car. Meanwhile, everyone around that witnessed it is freaking out. They got like a year or two years in the juvenile facility, Frank. And just last week, because you talked about carjackings, murders, all this. Last week in New Orleans, there was a woman that was uh, carjacked by four kids, 15, 16, and 17, two 15-year-olds, a 16- and 17-year-old. They horrifically carjacked this woman to the point she was tangled in her uh, seatbelt. Her arm was ripped off, and she she died on the street. 73-year-old woman just trying to leave the place where she worked in a quiet, pretty little area of New Orleans. 
And you know what will happen to them? Very little. Very little. So you think and a this, big part of this is a lack of proper criminal penalties for the people that are that are committing these misdeeds? Well, definitely on, on, on the more important things. You talked about murder, carjackings, uh, car theft. But even on the smaller scale, um, you know, everyone's a victim. No one has to be responsible, depending who you are. There's, you know, as we like to say, that your complexion is your protection in a lot of these cases. You look at Will Smith. If he was a white man, that wouldn't have been okay, and it shouldn't be okay for anyone to do. And last but not least, it, just regarding the whole overall civility of things, look at Ron Perlman yesterday on his – It was I can't remember where I found it. It was either on his Twitter or Instagram. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, the horrible – Things he said about Governor DeSantis. No, I didn't see that actually. Uh, now, I'm uh, now I just pulled up the article. He called him a Nazi piece of blank, apparently. And he used he used the F word. It was awful. And yet, do you, I? I would be surprised if it's not still up. It was up hours and hours after it had gone on. And imagine if a conservative-minded person had said that about you know some other person, you know. Said it about Cory Bush or Ayanna Press would have been taken down. He would have been blocked. So there's, and just like I said, I think it all it goes starts from the really really bad things and streams down. Just to like I said, a sense of selfishness and instant gratification. And whatever anything wants goes, anyone wants goes. There's no shame in anyone's game anymore, Frank. And that's that's really the shame of it. So what's that's the first what step in? turning things around. It sounds like it's getting prosecutors that are going to be a little tougher when it comes to applying the punishments to those who break the law. Is that the yeah, first step? Yeah, and also what, what, what Ed said, you know, not everything is about money. We, we as you're, you're very, very frank, you're well-informed. You know how much money we spend on this country in education, and yet look at, this, look at the outcomes we accept. Oh, yeah, no, I, I mean. Especially we're, in the inner city. Uh, Why do we do it? You know, yeah. in family, where is the family structure? Where is the expectation of doing the right thing in life? Where is the condemnation, as you like to say, for doing the wrong thing? Je- uh, Jennifer, you know great I mean? points all. I want to squeeze in at least uh, one or two more people before we get to Richard Luthman here. And I know Jeff in uh, Connecticut has been holding for a while. Hello, Jeff. Uh, good morning. Uh, I just want to say, uh, I think people, are, you know, in general, they're not acting weird. They're acting logically. They've been so suppressed and oppressed over the last two and a half years because they're looking at people that are lying to them. And they realize that they've been lied to for the last two and a half years. And now they see that Dr. Fauci wants to come around the corner again. And people aren't going to take it anymore, Frank. Right. But I mean, is that really is a guy that gets drunk on an airplane and storms the cockpit? Is he really thinking about Dr. Fauci? No, 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 no. I I don't want to say that. What I'm saying is it's the whole overall pressure that's been put on the general society. And people realize that they've been lied to, but now they realize that they're asking them to believe the lies. So it's like, all right, uh, I'm not going to take this anymore. So between the masking and between the vaccines and between the... um, you know, the forcing the kids to wear masks. People are just pissed off. And that's that. Now, thank I'm not going to take this crap anymore. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Ted is in union. Hello, Ted. Hey, Frank, how are you? Um, yeah, I kind of jumped in late. I was listening to a lot of the different things people were saying, but 
I guess I got to say that, you know, I just feel we're just such a divided country that I've in my I'm 60 and I just haven't seen it, anything like this. And you go into the supermarket, I don't know if you go shopping in supermarkets, you still got people yelling at other people for not wearing masks. And it's just it's it's crazy. And getting back to the woman with the stolen cars, um, you could steal a car in New Jersey and the police can't chase you. And that's becoming a little bit out of control. And if they do chase you and something causes an accident, someone gets killed, the uh, the officer would be responsible because he chased you. The only time he could do a pursuit is if there is an you know armed robbery or gun involved. Well, uh, I, I, it's a fine point, Ted. Can't disagree with you there. Nick is in Sayreville. Hello, Nick. Hey, Frank. Um, when you got guys like the number one at Twitter. Two years ago, Jack Dorsey, two weeks before a presidential election, decides to censor a New York Post about a man that will be harsh, is a crackhead, openly admitted, you know, interviewed on Jimmy Kimmel, uh, a book, everything that does deals with Russia and China and is the son of our president of the United States. And that was made normal. I mean, that was two years ago. This is all was supposed to be normal all through the mainstream media. I mean, pe- people are acting weird because they want us to act like this is just all normal. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I see. I don't think again, I don't see the guy storming the cockpit on the airplane doing it because of Hunter Biden's laptop. And I don't think this aberrant behavior is limited to one side of the political aisle. I don't. Uh, I think this is. This is this is endemic in society these days. Last call here on this subject before we get to my friend Richard Luthman. Uh, let's say hello to Nick in Syracuse. Hello, Nick. Hello, Frank. Thank you for taking my call. I wanted to mention um, the uncertainty that's put into society, I think, through media. And the fact we the society is divided so much among like a moral compass. There's half the country is anything goes and the other half is still holding on to um, morals or stuff we find in the Constitution. And they're like, how are all these people getting away with this? And it's creating a chaos. There's people that need a canon or a guideline or something to come back to. And you could either go up, raise or lower from that. But then there's other people in society where anything goes and they don't believe in any mores or any morals at all. And so we're not teaching morals and ethics in school anymore. And the whole ethics thing is shot from, you know, the president right on down to your local politician. And you don't know where you stand. And I think that's what creates a great disruption is people not knowing where they stand in this world and in society and how media pulls us apart. and We're all in our own little isolated little um techno bubbles, you know, in our own little groups. And we don't know where other people stand because we're not commuting as much as society and we're not in our church groups. And, you know, it's, well, it's you a know, whole breakdown of society. You know, too, it's I interesting. Think. Some of the same points that you write are in a Robert Putnam book called Bowling Alone. Uh, it's 21 years old now or maybe 22 years old, wow. but it's still very relevant. 
It's called it's about the collapse and revival of American community. And it sounds like it's a book that you could have written a couple of chapters in, Nick, because I think you 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 put your finger on some of the same problems that Putnam did 20 years ago. Uh, I want to take a break so we have some time to talk with Richard Luthman. Uh, he is a former attorney, I believe now disbarred. We'll find out for sure who was arrested uh, for a federal crime, pled guilty, also arrested in a state case in which he set up some fake Facebook pages of politicians. Now, um, one of the fake Facebook pages he set up was of the district attorney. So there was a special prosecutor in that case. He pled guilty in that case, too, But we have some major developments on that case that we're going to bring to your attention next. This is going to be breaking news that you're going to be hearing from the first time ever uh, since Richard is doing his first interview since leaving prison. Stay tuned for that. Straight ahead. WABC. A station built just for you. Entertaining talk, information, and New York opinions. I'm disgusted with it. The world famous and American original. Talk Radio 77 WABC and WABCRadio.com. Hey folks, admit it. You miss winter. You miss having excuses for eating like you're hibernating. But you can also admit you regret eating like Yogi Bear. Well, we finally made it past winter. Unfortunately, so did your winter weight. Luckily, you still have time to be fit and healthier by this summer since it only takes 40 days to lose 20 to 40 plus pounds with NJ Diet. NJ Diet's contractually guaranteed bioenergetically personalized supplements based on your saliva, hair, and blood work. Then, NJ Diet uses DNA testing to create your ideal diet plan and workout regimen to help you keep the weight off the rest of your life. NJ Diet is with you every step of the way. You're fully monitored by their certified staff to make sure you're burning fat and not just losing water. You'll also have access to the doctor's personal email and phone number. NJ Diet is committed to you keeping the weight off. Call today, 855-5NJ-DIET, or log on to NJDiet.com. Go to NJDiet.com and lose the weight for good today. Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Richard Luthman. Uh, Richard Luthman was a very colorful attorney in the New York area who uh, got a whole lot of attention, uh, was even on the front page of the New York Post around 2015 for trying to be part of a real life Game of Thrones by 
um, challenging one of his foes in two lawsuits to settle their differences with a fight to the death. Well, since then, he has had a lot of very colorful clients. And in the interest of full disclosure, people should know he's done uh, a lot of legal work um, for for me over the years, mostly related to political stuff. I don't think uh, I ever paid him for any of that, but which for which I'm very grateful. But uh, then he also was uh, involved in some other incidents, subsequently was arrested in a federal case and a state case, uh, went to prison and is now out of prison and joins us now live on the radio. Richard, thanks so much for joining me. Frank, good to hear your voice. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, how are you doing? How is uh, how is adjusting to life after prison treating you? Listen, I'm I'm uh, enjoying myself down in Florida. It's a it's a free state, and uh, you know I, I hear that things in New York are getting worse and worse every day. So I'm happy to be here. Now you um, were involved in a federal case. You were represented by my friend. Uh, Arthur Idala and his firm, you ended up taking a guilty plea in that case. That case had some things to do with uh, threatening people and kidnapping and a scrap metal scheme. You took a guilty plea in that case. You went to prison for that case. That case is sort of a, a settled matter. We're not doing anything to reopen that case, right? Well, not at this point, but uh, things are never settled if uh, new evidence comes to light. Got it. Okay. So now there was also, as if, you know, the old saying, when it rains, it pours, right around the time that you you got jammed up with this federal case, you were investigated by the in a state case. They had to appoint a special prosecutor because one of the people tangentially involved was the district attorney and his wife, who at the time was the chief administrative judge in uh, in Staten Island, involving creating fake Facebook pages of politicians. Now, before we get into the news on this case, why would somebody why would you create fake Facebook pages? Is this due to satire? Is this some sort of a political strategy? Why would someone create fake Facebook pages of politicians? Well, there was an article in 2011 in The, in the, the Guardian that detailed a United States government operation of creating fake Facebook pages, uh, sock puppets, as they call them, in order to further United States interests around the world. So they would create pages and they would uh, pump out all of their propaganda, you know, United States government propaganda throughout the world. And once that was uh, revealed that the United States government was engaging in the activity in, in 2011, the, the argument was, well, now everybody's going to engage in this activity, the private sector, businesses, politics, everywhere else. And uh, basically, uh, Facebook didn't regulate any of this and it doesn't regulate this a lot because you'll see, you know, fake Facebook profiles all over the place. So that was the genesis of the idea. The genesis of the idea was to uh, create these fake Facebook, fake Twitter profiles for strictly political purposes. The no personal gain to me, no pecuniary, monetary or otherwise gain to me, only to raise political issues. And partially, you know, using satire, but, for, but but totally First Amendment protected, you know, full scale First Amendment protection. I would be 
you know, talking and, 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 uh, in the, in the voice of, of these different people. And these people do it all the time on, on the radio, on TV and, and on social media. And I would be raising uh, political issues doing that. And I saw that there was nothing wrong with it. Uh, I was fully protected by the first amendment and uh, I, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. So the the motivation behind it, and I agree, I don't really see the crime there, but the motivation behind uh, creating a, a fake uh, web, a Facebook page for a, an assembly member or a district attorney or a city council member, whomever, is it is it satire or is it to fool people into thinking that uh, these politicians are taking positions that they were not taking? Well, that's that's actually one of the the allegations against me was that I was uh, putting uh, positions that people weren't taking. Uh, I was put, I was putting words in their mouth. I was I was trying to mislead the public. I was trying to do X, Y, and Z. Now, the first thing I have to say to that is the Supreme Court of the United States says that you have no obligation to tell the truth in politics. They said it on several occasions. Justice Breyer, who's retiring. Uh, in oral arguments in the case, raised the hypothetical, what happens when the Nazis knock on your door and they ask you, are there Jews under the floorboards? You know, so yeah, there's there's points when you when you have speech to to, to in politics and in, in, in certain situations where you're not obligated to, to tell truth. And sometimes a falsehood is something that's that's the right thing to do. Uh, the second point on that is the things that I said in this particular case about particular people were you know, generally true. Uh, there was an assembly uh, a candidate, a woman, who in, in 2009 was a Democrat. Uh, she ran in 2017 as a Republican. In 2009, uh, you have pictures of her standing with uh, Bill de Blasio, uh, with uh, John Luisi from Staten Island, who was the candidate for borough president, who was a, a huge de Blasio supporter. Uh, you have you know, other people uh, 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 from Staten Island politics. And uh, at that point, she was in lockstep with 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 Bill de Blasio. She wanted to build the Bill de Blasio to be elected mayor. She was a Democrat. She didn't come out against him. So she this was your way. Him. This was your way of highlighting aspects of political candidates records that they may not have wanted highlighted, for instance. Well, exactly. That's something that has to be explained. How do okay. you how do you how do you in 2009 in lockstep with de Blasio? Uh, and uh, then by by 2017, you've had this, uh, you know, sure. Uh, we'll, yeah, we don't, the yeah, we don't need to go into her um, uh, or anyone else's uh, the nuts and bolts of their spot. You made the decision to plead guilty. And I, I don't blame you. And I think anybody that's been through the ringer of the criminal justice system knows that whether it's the federal system or the state system, the pressure to plea is overwhelming and they do everything they can to discourage you from actually going to trial and contesting the charges. Now you have filed uh, some paperwork to disqualify the special prosecutor in your case and take back your guilty plea in this fake uh, Facebook page uh, case. Is that right, uh, number one? And why are you doing this, number two? Number one, I filed uh, uh, something in the appellate division of the Supreme Court's second department on Monroe Place in Brooklyn. And that is a notice of appeal. And I want to appeal, uh, as a matter of law, uh, the, 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 the fact that the plea that I took was, uh, an illegal plea. 
insofar as the mode of proceeding that it was, it was uh, one that was not allowed under the laws of the state of New York. And I'll get into that a little more. But to answer your, your, your second question, and yes, I'm looking in, in a second filing uh, in the Richmond County Supreme Court uh, to disqualify the special prosecutor and to, to, to preclude him from taking any more fees. This guy has, has taken half, I think half a million dollars. I'm trying to seek the records through FOIL right now, but he's spending half a million dollars on basically a couple of, of misdemeanors uh, on what's appearing more and more to be some type of vendetta. Uh, they, so I want this, this, uh, this prosecutor to be cut off. And I think that he should be kicked off the case too, because he has a history uh, when he was an 18B panel attorney for fraudulent billing, for, for misrepresenting billing. And so he was overbilling the city of New York and the state of New York and the taxpayers before. And I believe he's doing that now. And I believe that when you're acting as a prosecutor, that type of dishonesty doesn't cut it. I think you should be held to a higher standard and he should be gone. Uh, there's also other things. He's filed some false documents in the court. He's made misrepresentations to the court. He's done things that, that the, uh, nobody uh, in good conscience could say this guy can continue. So if you, if you have your druthers, A, the special prosecutor will be dismissed and cut off, but B, ultimately you want to take back your guilty plea. Yes, that's, that's the legal issue. This is a very, uh, it's, it's a novel legal issue. This is a, a, really an issue of first impression. It hasn't been to an appellate division or to the Court of Appeals of New York, which is the highest court in the state. And that the issue is about when you can take a, a, a plea and where you can take a plea and how you can take a plea. And it's presumed under the criminal procedure law that arraignments and pleas and sentencing, uh, they're fundamental proceedings in the case and that you have to be present for those proceedings uh, physically in the courtroom. Uh, there's, uh, a, a, an exception for, 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 for pleas and, and for sentences for only for misdemeanor cases under the procedural law. And that's only with a very specialized affidavit. Um, so that, that the, first of all, the, the, it, there's, there's, there's no law that allows it, uh, you know, generally in the procedural law. Now there's, uh, because of COVID and because of, um, you know, the technology and, and whatnot, there's, there's something called, um, article 182. Which is allows for uh, you know, telephonic or, 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 or virtual or video uh, proceedings uh, when it's not an arraignment, not a plea, and not a sentencing. So it allows for that to happen uh, for for non-essential portions of, of the case. But uh, it, it specifically says it's, it's, it's it, it it can't happen for a plea or a sentence, and it says that under the, the rules of the chief administrative judge as well. Uh, now fast forward to COVID. We're in the middle of COVID, and the the uh, the governor of the state of New York issues an executive order because of the deplorable conditions at Rikers Island. Rikers Island, you know, was was in bad shape. There's people sick with COVID. There's a short uh, shortage of staff, and they don't want to transfer people back and forth to the courts. They're prisoners uh, to to the courthouses. So they said, let's just do this uh, by video plea. You know, through the uh, through through the technology we have during COVID. Let's do this with the the prisoners there so we can save the, the, the manpower uh, to keeping the prison safe and, and doing other things. Well, that was an executive order that applied to Rikers Island. The actual title of the executive order talks about Rikers Island and Rikers Island alone. Well, they expanded that a little bit to allow for pleas, uh, you know, for people who were out of prison, uh, you know, in, in different courts. 
And, uh, there, there's, there's some case law out there about that now from, from the Supreme Court in, 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 in Manhattan. Uh, and so, uh, what happened was, uh, they, the, 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 the executive order never talked about somebody in my situation. I was somebody who was in federal prison serving a federal sentence in the custody of the federal government. And yet I had a state case in New York. Now, the, 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 the executive order didn't allow for a video plea. That's, that's my legal contention. And additionally, the, the way that uh, this should have been handled was already uh, t- told by the legislature back in 1974. There's something called the uh, Interstate Agreement on Detainers. And that talks about transferring prisoners from federal custody into state custody uh, to face cases uh, within a speedy time uh, to, re- uh, to respect speedy trial rights. That never happened in my case. So, so I was never in the custody of the New York uh, State Department of Corrections. I was never in New York State. I was in a federal facility in Pennsylvania. I could have been on the dark side of the moon taking that plea because there were no New York State police officers, no New York State uh, correctional officers, uh, nobody from New York State there to even uh, quantify or qualify the fact that I was in the room. Uh, the fact is that there's a presumption of regularity that attaches when you're in, you're a prisoner in, in the, in the custody of the New York State, New York, New York City correction system, or in a prison, or, or in the court, or in an attorney's office, or someplace else in New York State. I could have been anywhere. I, and, 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 and the fact I was, I was in a room, and there were, uh, there, there was all sorts of, uh, things happening, which I'm, I'm, I, I it's just, I'm not gonna get into it now, but, I was, there's no regularity that attaches to that. There's no New York state hook to someone sitting in a federal prison taking a, a plea. Because if that's the case, I could be sitting in a prison in, in the Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, avoiding shells and take a plea in New York state. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't have any legal, uh, the, the legal significance and the, the presumption of regularity that's needed under New York. Uh, law. Understood. So the, in addition to wanting the prosecutor dismissed, your basis for appealing your guilty plea is because you're saying Governor Cuomo's executive order specified Rikers Island number one and um, did made no mention of taking pleas by video from federal prisons in Pennsylvania. Exactly. That's that's a that's a bridge too far. If they're going to say the, the people in, in, in New York state custody can do it, that's fine. But he can't without without talking about the interstate agreement on detainers which is an agreement between the 50 states and the federal government, each of the 50 states and the federal government, they can't, they can't do that. They can't do it on its own. He can't suspend that on its own. It's, it's a matter of, of, uh, of a compact now, between the federal government and the states. Let's say you're successful in this, Richard. Let's say the appellate division says, yes, congratulations. You can, um, take back your guilty plea. And then let's say, wouldn't the logical consequence of that would be, You'd go to trial again, right? And if you go to trial, couldn't you get sentenced to more prison time? Well, here's the thing. First, it would go back to pretrial stage, and I would still have the opportunity to file pretrial motions. And I believe that if I file pretrial motions in this case, as a matter of law, that what what the uh, the, the prosecutor approved in the in the grand jury or presented in the grand jury doesn't amount to to, uh, to criminal charges. So I'm going to ask the court to, to look at the grand jury minutes and knock out, you know, I think it's a 17 count indictment, to knock out all 17 of these counts. I think after I'm done, there might be one or two counts left standing. That's how this was a, an exercise for, for a first year law student in, in, in uh, issue finding and find the, the most uh, 
uh, outlandish uh, charges you can bring against somebody. That was it was 17 charges, and, and they're, they're, they're nothing nothing's going to stick if I get to bring a motion uh, to the judge uh, to go into those grand jury minutes and, and to look at the legal sufficiency of what was presented at with the law. Because I have a strong First Amendment defense to everything uh, that's there, almost every charge. And that First Amendment defense is 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 uh, is one that's not you know to, has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. It only has to be proved by me by a preponderance of the evidence, and that creates a a burden on the prosecutor when they're in the grand jury to to overcome that as well. So they're, they're, he's got a lot of problems. This guy, he's he now he's not he's not even the first prosecutor actually. The fact is that the Tom Torme was was first appointed on this case back in 2017 when all this broke. And Tom Torme did some investigation, and Tom Torme said, there's no case here, First Amendment. He has this, the same legal opinion that you did, Frank, that, that this is, the First Amendment is pretty pretty broad and protects uh, political discourse. Well, what happened was in, in, in 2018, uh, the, the, the female who ran for the assembly uh, hired a former U.S. attorney uh, to basically uh, nudge the federal prosecutors and the state prosecutors to try to get me prosecuted for something. They even went so far as to put an article in the Daily Mail in uh, in the UK laying out their whole uh, case because nobody in the United States would, would would touch it because of the First Amendment. And there's no First Amendment over in the UK. So uh, enter this this current special prosecutor. Uh, he comes in and he's got he's full of, of piss and vinegar and he's got uh, something something to prove and he's got a free reign on the government checkbook. To, to amass bills after bills after bills, and he uh, convenes this huge grand jury against me. And I'm, mind you, already in federal prison at this point. Uh, but he convenes this huge grand jury that the Democratic Party then uses as a huge uh, campaign uh, piece. The, yeah. The surrogate, no, the I, I remember. I remember. The um, surrogate use, uses it. The former borough president uses it as a a huge uh, uh, political tool. Are you uh, are you representing yourself at this point? At this point, you know, it's a legal argument. I I don't think anybody has studied this stuff for the past few years <laughs> better than me. I can imagine. I, I think that I, I I'm 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 laser focused on this issue. Uh, you know, I, I I'm 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 trying to stick to the law here. Uh, and I think that, you know, the next couple of hurdles that I have are legal hurdles, and I think I'm the best person to do it. And uh, so I, all told, how much time did you end up serving in federal prison? Well, and that's 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 a good point, because you ask, well, well Rich, couldn't they, they bring you back to, to trial and give you more time? I have three years worth of jail credit for New York State. So I'm playing with house money at this point. Does anybody really think that fake Facebook pages are going to land me in jail for three more yeah. than three well, years? Well, that's 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 a fair point, uh, Richard. As something tells me we're going to be hearing a lot more about this case. So the next step in this case is what? We're waiting to hear back from the appellate division. Well, um, I'm supposed to have I'm supposed to have a a hearing on April seventh in Richmond County Supreme Court. I called them up to try to figure out how I'm going to do that because I'm on U.S. probation and I can't leave the Middle District of Florida. So I want to see what they're doing. They, I called them up the other day. They haven't called me back. I, I don't know if they're playing games. I sent a letter to the judge. But we're also waiting on the appellate division second department because I filed a motion uh, to proceed in form of pauperous, which is, you know, I'm, I'm basically indigent at this point. They've taken everything from me. 
and to proceed uh, pro se by myself, uh, for myself in the appellate division. And I, I'm waiting for the appellate division to hand that down uh, to, to allow me to proceed. Richard, on that note, I have to end it there. Uh, we're, we'll talk again. Please keep us posted on this. All right. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, 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 bass. Yeah, it's pretty clear. I ain't no size two, but I can shake it, shake it like I'm supposed to do. I got that boom boom that all the boys chase. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. It's Megan Trainer. If you ever want to know what music we're playing on the show, you got to join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. Uh, that's Morano Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, you could participate in the conversation going on about this show. And um, we got a brand new edition of the Racket Report podcast uh, that is out. So uh, you can listen to the Racket Report podcast. Just search the Racket Report. That is a podcast that I do on organized crime. This episode delves into the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. And uh, while you're subscribing to podcasts, be be sure to subscribe to the podcast of this show. Find us at WABCRadio.com or just search The Other Side of Midnight wherever you get your podcast app. Now, there's the, the individual interviews. If you just want, want to hear an individual interview, those that, that is the Frank Morano uh, podcast. If you want to hear the whole show, you got to search The Other Side of Mid- Midnight on any podcast app. Um, by the way, a little bit of a new schedule for the WABC lineup come starting right away, actually. As of now, Dominic Carter, I will follow him each and every morning. Instead of Dominic being on Tuesday through Saturday, he is now going to be on Monday through Friday. That means Sunday morning, in Sunday night into Monday morning at midnight, Dominic Carter will be on before I take the reins at one. So uh, uh, love Dominic. He's a great guy. Love seeing him. Love following him on the radio. A lot of synergy between both of our shows. I'm excited to follow him now five days a week. Uh, but uh, I, Dominic is not the only one on a new schedule. This is our first week of sleep training for young Carmine. That's where you, if your kid is crying, you just leave him be. Until he falls asleep. It did not work out too well yesterday. I came home to a crying child and an exhausted wife. We made a couple of modifications to his bedtime routine. Hopefully it'll be smooth sailing today. Uh, We'll see what happens. I'll keep you posted. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, um, did you ever see the movie The Contender? I love The Contender. It's really well done. Um, as far as political movies goes, it is one of the best. Jeff Bridges plays the the president. Sam Elliott, whose voice I just love, who I could listen to read the phone book. He plays a chief aide to the president. Gary Oldman, who's great in everything. He plays uh, an overzealous congressman. And uh, Christian Slater's in it. He plays a young, idealistic congressman. It's a really well-done film, I must say. And it, it's and it's very educational, actually, because it has to do uh, – I won't give you any plot details, but the broadly, it has to do with a president who's vice president, um, I think, dies. The, the office of the vice president is vacant. And Jeff Bridges, who's the president – has to pick a vice president, and she has to go through the whole confirmation process. It's really interesting, and it's very educational about the 25th Amendment and other things. But there's one scene in that picture that, I, that I've been thinking about over the last 12 hours. There's a scene when Jeff Bridges turns to a guy, the governor of some state, maybe Virginia, a, and the Democratic governor, and he's a Democratic president, if I remember correctly. It's been years since I've seen the film. And he tells this guy that he's essentially not picking him as vice president. And he's picking somebody else. And he says, uh, I think the fellow's name is Jack. Again, I'm, this is, I'm spitballing here. This is from memory. He says to this fella, Jack, you're the future of this party and you always will be. And there's so many different ways to take that line because the way I took it is meaning he'll never have a present. He'll always be the future of the Democratic Party. He'll never be the guy whose time it is. And I was also thinking of, um, on some level, an episode of Family Ties. Remember Family Ties with um, Michael J. Fox as Alex Keaton? Great show. And Michael J. Fox is, and this is from more than almost 40 years ago, so I couldn't find the audio. But Michael J. Fox is talking to his father on the show. And he says, I, I'm a failure. I'm, I'm like Orlando Del Rio. The father says, you're nothing like Orlando Del Rio. And then it's funny. He says, uh, Who's Orlando Del Rio? <laughs> Come on, Dad. Orlando Del Rio. Now, he never – he um, Orlando Del Rio was not really a baseball player. But in the episode, Orlando Del Rio is a fictional baseball player who was a very bright prospect that never, ever materialized into actual superstardom. And – both of those scenes were in my head yesterday as I was listening to Michael Harrison, who was just a guest on the show this week. And I do listen to his podcast. Michael Harrison's the founder and publisher of Talkers. And Michael Harrison was doing a podcast uh, with the aforementioned Arthur Idella. And Arthur mentions me, that he likes me a lot and listens to me all the time. 
And this is what Michael Harrison says in response. This is the other side of midnight on 7. No, that is not Michael Harrison. That is Frank Morano talking about uh, the other side of midnight. I agree with you about Frank Morano. And I've seen I saw him grow from a from a pup in this business where he was just an enthusiastic kid with a great attitude. He's actually evolved into a great talk show host. And I think and I've told him, I think he's one of the I don't want to say one guy is the future of talk radio. But when people ask me about does talk radio have a future, it has a future. And um, guys like Frank Morano are that future, not to belittle the fact that he's already on every every night on a New York radio station. So that's big time. Time as but it is. If, he was, if he was a stock, I'd be buying. If he was a yeah. corporation, I'd be buying Absolutely. stock. And that's for sure. So uh, basically, Michael Harrison says in that interview, the same thing he said to me when he was on this show. He says that, I mean, again, I don't, I'm trying to sound humble here, that I am the future of talk radio, more or less. Not just me, but really people like me. And I've heard him say this to other people. That's It's come back to me. And it got me thinking, obviously, I hope he's right. Meanwhile, I'm not looking to do anything else other than keep the job that I have and hopefully continue to grow this audience and have it continue to be the number one radio show in New York on any station AM or FM. But it got me thinking, see, Michael Harrison and others, they may have all these high hopes for me and uh, these predictions for future superstardom. It got me thinking about, in field after field, the list of people who were supposed to be the next great big thing and were nobody. They totally fizzled out. And I wonder if Michael Harrison will be able to listen to that audio 10 years from now and feel the same way about that prediction. Now, in in pro wrestling, for instance, there was a, a wrestler that was supposed to be big, um, uh, Glacier. Glacier. It was, it was supposed to be all the rage. You remember Glacier? Yeah, I kind of remember Glacier. Right. You kind of remember him. <laughs> Glacier was everywhere. I mean, he was everywhere. It was a massive push. There were promos running for weeks, mysterious promos, mysterious music. The guy was a mediocre wrestler at best. Ludwig Borga, same thing, went nowhere. Red Rooster. No, that's not a good example because that was a great wrestler, Terry Taylor. He was but, a great wrestler, but the the, the gimmick didn't Yeah, but that's a gimmick. Far. That's a gimmick. That's, you're, 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 you're ruining my point here, Matt Blaze. <laughs> now, do you, do you remember the name Paul Wilson? Paul Wilson, um, in on the eve of the Mets season in, I think, 1995, or it might have even been 96. I think it was 95. It might have been 96. I don't know. There was supposed to be three new young pitchers that were going to be great, that were going to be transformative. Teams were willing to trade their biggest stars to get one of these three young arms. The Mets were going to dominate the pitching landscape in the National League for a decade with Paul Wilson. Now you say Paul Wilson's name to somebody. You know what you hear? Sounds like an owl. They say who? Um, Bill Pulsifer. Who? And Jason Isringhausen. Now, Isringhausen actually did go on to have a a great career later as a relief pitcher. Not a great career with the Mets, but he did go on to have a great uh, career. But Bill Pulsifer and Paul Wilson, they were the next big stars in baseball. 
They were going to be this generation's Tom Seaver. Went nowhere. Same thing with Bob Hamlin. You remember the hammer, Bob Hamlin? Broke Bo Jackson's Royals record for home runs by a rookie. One rookie of the year. Went nowhere. Went nowhere. Butch Husky, remember Butch Husky hit more home runs than any Met in spring training everywhere. Now, mention Butch Husky to somebody. Who? So you got wrestling, um, Ludwig Borga, Glacier. In uh, baseball, people like Paul Wilson, Bill Pulsifer, Bob Hamlin. And in acting, how, how often in movies or acting... Do you hear that so-and-so is going to be the next big star? Carrie Ann Moss. She became a Hollywood star basically overnight when she played Trinity in The Matrix. Now, the film made $460 million. Everybody's predicting she's going to do all these incredible things. Well, can you name a film that she's done that doesn't have the word Matrix in it? Minnie Driver, nominated for an Academy Award for Goodwill Hunting. What'll she do next? She hasn't done much of anything since then. Um, Megan Fox, Brendan Ralph, Superman. These people have not had the kind of incredible careers that were predicted of them. So I'm wondering, just like we did yesterday with that uh, fun list of priests that were best known for things other than being priests, I'm wondering if we can compile a list. It's very challenging because I listened one time to Ann Coulter trying to do this with cable news figures, and she was unable to do it because you just forget about these people so quickly who were the it girl one minute, and then the next minute they're yesterday's news. I'm wondering if we can compile a list in any field. doesn't matter if it's politics uh, movies, pro wrestling, pro sports, business, radio, journalism, whatever the case may be, of people who were the hot prospect, who had, you know, it was thought that they had the world by the onions. And then all of a sudden, they totally fizzled out. Nowhere to be, nowhere to be heard from ever again. 800 848 9222 if you have some examples it's 1-800-848-WABC I tell you one guy that I think is coming um, you, you know one guy that could be in that category although he sort of rebranded himself as a cable news pundit is Harold Ford Jr. Harold Ford Jr. was Obama before Obama they were talking about him as potentially the first black president no, he didn't even wasn't able, able to win statewide office. Uh, I am curious if Beto O'Rourke ends up falling into that category if he loses the um, election this year in Texas. Doesn't matter the field, politics, sports, entertainment, radio, journalism, business, whatever. Can you think of somebody that was supposed to be the next hottest thing and was totally forgotten? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Now the challenge with remembering the forgotten is remembering them, because sometimes it can be difficult. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Let me say hello to Roger in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi. I've thought about this for a little while. Um, although her, she's not forgotten so much, but she never really materialized, and that was uh, 
Danica Patrick, um, especially after she left Indy and went to uh, NASCAR. Oh, so uh, especially she was a she was a race car driver. Yeah, um, yes, and um, and I remember uh, making dollar. I was in the living room watching the Indy Five Hundred the first couple of years uh, after she uh, at least uh, uh, led a lap. Well, I was hoping and waiting and crossing my fingers, hoping to see the, her win at Indy 500 and um, or this race or that race. And uh, um, and when she did to ask, I, and, and she just fizzled out. And now she did do some commentary recently, uh, 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 two weeks ago, um, a race that was uh, out west. And she's very, you know, she's very bright, and she's seems to be talented. But when she when when she left Indy, you know that you know, yeah, and tried her hand at NASCAR instead. It just it was just all downhill. Uh, after her first two years, then she, she seemed to slide downhill for some reason. I don't know. You know, that is interesting. That does happen in sports. You know, we've seen that happen. Look, as a Met fan, you can name a ton of people that that's happened to with the Mets. Obviously, my familiarity is mostly with baseball. Uh, but I, I think some people might say the same thing of somebody like uh, like Tim Tebow or, or maybe even Nick yeah. Foles. You know, I mean, I know he is yeah. um, he's with the I think he's with the Bears now, but. Um, it's, uh, he, after he won the Super Bowl, he doesn't have that kind of level of, uh, oh, this is a Super Bowl winning quarterback that a lot of other Super Bowl winning quarterbacks uh, have gotten. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes. And you mentioned the Mets, Steve Metz of the Mets, the Dark Knight. Yeah. <laughs> what a well, no, well, Steve Metz wasn't the Dark Knight. That was, that was, um, that was Harvey. That was Matt Harvey. Oh, I'm sorry. Matt Harvey. Yes, correct. Well, both of them. Put them both on the same list. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I think you're right, Lou. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Met scouting in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years has not been good. Yeah, more like the last uh, 50, 58 years. <laughs> uh, I was there. I was there. <laughs> I, I was 13 years old when they won the last World Series. So, you know, I'm dating myself, but... That was a very uh, great time. The Mets and the Jets in the same year. My God, uh, we New York. Well, that was their first. That was their. That was that was their first World Series. The last World Series they won was '86. '86, right? Where you had the Mets and I think the Giants also. Correct. Yeah. Right. Uh, Right. Good one, though. That was a new year. uh, That was another new uh, New York uh, two uh, championships. Yeah, that's right. So beyond sports, give me some other fields of stars that were supposed to be the next big thing and sort of just went nowhere. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. You know, there was one fella, again, I don't want to be dismissive of anybody, but there was one fella that had a radio show on Long Island. Um, he's na- he was name- His name's John Gomez. He was on a station that no longer exists out there. I think it was WLIE. And he was Sean Hannity's best friend, and he was an attorney. And there were some, uh, I think Sean, through his relationship with the program director at this station at the time, got him some appearances filling in on this station. And I remember around the halls, people saying, oh, 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 that's going to be the, 
the next big thing. Oh, Sean's behind him. Phil's behind him. He's a lawyer, just like Mark Levin. Turns out the guy was no Mark Levin. 800-848-9222. Anybody else you could think of that everybody would say, they would write about, they would do these glowing profiles and say, this is the person in XYZ field that's going to be the next hottest thing, the next all-time great, and then now they're a trivia question. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Neil on Staten Island, what do you have for us, Neil? Well, uh, Frank, uh, I can't think of anybody, a uh, person. Not a single but, person. But I can't think of the Etzel. Uh, the Etzel, the Ford Etzel, right? Ford Etzel and uh, the new diet, the, the new Coke. Yeah, well, we did a whole, we did one of these for products before, things that were supposed to be the next big trend. We actually did this recently when we were talking about Betamax, uh, and that, yeah. that sort of fizzled out. But those are both good examples. The That's Etzel. What, what what was the problem with the Etzel, by the way? Why didn't people like it? I, I tell you the truth. I thought it was a beautiful car, but uh, it just never caught on for some reason. Yeah. Do you have any idea why? No, no. Huh. It was the styling was a little unusual. But if you see pictures of them, I mean, there, there is an Etzel Club. I think it's a great looking car. I always thought so, too. I've never driven one or ridden in one, so maybe they didn't ride well, but uh, I always thought so, too. I always thought it was a nice-looking car. Uh, good good observation. Thanks for the stroll down memory lane. You know another one of those guys that was supposed to be the next big thing? Edward Furlong. You know, Edward Furlong, he did Terminator 2, and he did American History X. Can you think of... I mean, there's one other movie that I remember Edward Furlong doing that I liked, but I don't remember anyone else ever telling me they liked it. It was a horror movie called Brain Scan, which I liked, but I don't. I, I've never even met another person that's seen Brain Scan. Actually, eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Eric is in Manhattan. What do you have for us, Eric? Uh, I think his first name is David Caruso. He was in the actor. He was in um. He was in Rambo. He had a little part, and then he was in one of the NCIS shows. No, no, he was, he was NYPD in, Blue. NYPD right. Blue. There you go. NYPD. And then he was in a movie with Nicholas Cage, Kiss of Death, and then kind of, you know, I guess he kind of fizzled. Yeah, you <laughs> know, know, he's one of those guys. Kinda. You do find yourself saying, "Whatever happened to David yeah, Caruso?" Yeah, yeah. And he's and a young a man. He's not even seventy. Yeah, right. And there was a kid from that. The kids from that movie. Um, on Golden Pond, I vaguely remember him. Being, oh, I'm going to be so big, or somebody, somebody was saying. Maybe it was just him, but then he kind of disappeared. So. You know, I I, uh, I like think of a lot of them if you really think about it. Like yeah, yeah, no, and, and that's yeah. why it's so fun to think about it from people in other fields, not just movies, not just sports, but politics, um, uh, writing, literature, journalism. Who do you got? Rick is in New Jersey. What do you have for us? Good morning, Frank. Just quickly, whatever happened to Pamela Anderson? Well, she's starring on Broadway on Chicago, in Chicago. What? Yeah, she's she's I'm, playing. I work on Broadway. I didn't hear. When, when did that happen? I don't know. I, I didn't know that it was possible not to hear this. This was more publicity oh. that this show has gotten in the last three weeks than it has in the last five years. Yeah, she's playing oh, Roxy Hart in Chicago on Broadway. Well, my faux pas, my faux pas. Right. I got. I got. I got to update myself. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rick. Uh, let me say hello to Xavier in New Jersey. Good evening, Frank. How are you? Good show. Thank you. I think I'm doing pretty well. Yes. And let's not forget the great Joe Pepitone from the New York Yankees. 
So you would characterize Joe Pepitone as a prospect that fizzled out? Yes, he had a great career. He was going strong. He even had a good book, and then he just disappeared. Well, and, he still uh, had. He still did play twelve years, though. I mean, I guess you're yes. right. Everyone was talking about him as the next Mickey Mantle, the next Bobby yes, Mercer, and yes. you're right. He never achieved that level of of uh, yes. of fame. Yes, and let's not forget Drew Barrymore's father, John Drew Barrymore, started in 1953 in a movie called Quebec with Canada Lee. Last good movie was High School Confidential in 58, completely vanished and. His daughter found him, you know, wandering the streets of San Francisco with nothing. She brought him back and took care of him until he passed. Good looking man, huh. good actor, and just, uh, you know, fizzled out. Yeah, that, that is a shame. I, you know, I'm sure this has happened. I don't follow a lot of the modern pop singers as closely, but I'm sure there's a whole bunch of pop singers that were all billed as the next big, uh, the next big thing. And they were young, and they achieved all this stuff, and then that never happened. Uh, Let us say hello to... But if you do not let us have this table, I am going in and tell my friend Harvey. Harvey? Oh, Harvey! You're going to tell your friend Harvey. Harvey! He's going to tell Harvey. That's a nice name. I like that. a nice name, That's a nice name, Harvey. I don't care if you tell Harvey. Go ahead and tell him. He's got me mighty scared. I'm shaking to death. And let us say hello to Harvey in Clifton. Hello, Harvey. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. I got a friend, Shirley, bigger than you. Anyway, uh, there was a band back in the 70s, and they were being touted as the new Beatles. It turned out they became one-hit wonders. Do you remember the name of them? Uh, in the 60s? No, no, 70s. Oh, in the 70s. In the 70s, I'd say. Uh, no, I, I don't. Uh, Bay City Rollers. Oh, the Bay they City Rollers. Hit, they were being touted, and they turned out one hit, and that was it. Uh, the Bay City Rollers. Um, you know, it's funny. I um, I, I was recently rewatching an interview that Jay Thomas did with David Letterman, and he was talking uh-huh. about the Bay City Rollers. And uh, you're right. You're right. They never became the Beatles, that's for sure. David's in Brooklyn. What do you have for us, David? Uh, Harvey just stole my uh, thunder. There, ah, you were going to say the, you were going to say the Bay City Rollers. I, I was, yeah, the next coming of the Beatles. Wow. Well, how about from the the world of politics? Michael yeah. Aviani. Aviani. <laughs> Michael Avenatti. That's going to be the next president. Yeah. Do you think he's going to have a second act after he gets out of prison? You never know. You never know you is never right. Know. You never know is right. I like the Bay City Rollers, but you're right. Beyond this, what do they ever have to offer? Uh, Jeff is in Suffolk County. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Frank, I'm not on the Whitestone Bridge tonight. I'm already in the market. Excellent. I can uh, tell, but you sound it. You sound it. I can tell. Excellent. I love it. Uh, two quickies. Bill de Blasio for president <laughs> and Eric Lindros for the Rangers. Um, so Bill de Blasio in the world of politics. Well, I mean, the guy did become mayor. I mean, as far as political jobs go, that is, I mean, that is something. It's not like he became nothing, you know. Uh, but, um, but, and, and Eric Lindros, the hockey player, that, that's a good one. That's a good one. He was a good player, but I guess he never did become Mark Messier or Wayne Gretzky. Joe in Staten Island, what do you have for us? Yes, uh, back to music again. It's supposed to be the next Bruce Springsteen, Southside Johnny. Oh, Southside Johnny. But Southside Johnny's still around and still performing. 
off and on now, but he really hasn't done much in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years. You, you, don't, you don't really – I think he moved or something to California. I don't remember, Frank, but uh, he certainly didn't make it to Springsteen's level. That's true. That's true. You, you know, somebody in music, that reminds me, and I've interviewed him before, and maybe we'll invite him back on this show because he's a great guy and a real talent, and I like him a lot. But somebody at a young age that achieved he, – he's, he's got that label. I wouldn't call him this, and I don't think he would call himself this. But he's got that label of one-hit wonder, but he achieved that success so young was Vito Pacone from The Elegance. Vito Pacone um, was supposed to be a musical prodigy, the kind of person that folks would listen to for decades. He never really became the kind of star that was predicted of him. So that's what I'm kind of looking for is somebody that they were saying was not going to be just good, not just make a living, but be great, the greatest. And then they sort of fizzle out. I'd be especially curious if you have any from the world of radio, just because I follow radio so uh, so closely, and it's tough for me to, you know, to remember some of these folks that were touted as the next big thing but weren't actually. Uh, let me say hello to Gary in Inwood. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Frank. A uh, rising young pop star fizzles out. A lot of plug, a lot of airtime. Peter Lemongello. Pete, you know, I don't even know who that is. Who was that? Well, you have the ability to look that up fast on your end. Yeah, right? uh, he was a singer uh, known. Yeah, along well, yeah, that, that nightclub sort of thing. Uh, always put the suit on, a tux, that sort of thing. Uh Mid America music uh, from Jersey. I guess he, he's still performing. We'll we'll have to get play some of his yeah, just, records tomorrow. He was there and he just. Then he wasn't. Very he was interesting. Next big, next big thing. It sounds like uh, that definitely fits the description of what we're looking for. Peter Lemongello. Corey in Brooklyn, what do you have for us? Um, I had uh, uh, Michael Rappaport. No. That, no. Well, he's been in some pretty decent stuff. And then, yeah. Uh, how about Jaden Smith as J- a karate kid? Yeah, well, Jaden Smith, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah, I could, I could see that he one. He seemed like a young guy who, uh, you know, did a great job in that movie. And then, you know, two uh, actors for parents who were great. And then I don't know where he went from there. Yeah, well, that's fair. Uh, that's a good one, Jaden Smith. I wouldn't put Michael Rappaport in that category. All right, we're going to go uh, live to Atlantic City next. We're going to do the AC report. We're going to talk with Phil Giuliano, who is the uh, one of the grand poobahs over at Bally's, the executive vice president of casino operations. They're doing some exciting things at Bally's. I'm going to say three of – how many words? About six words that I never thought I'd say. I can't wait to go back to Bally's. Uh, You know, Bally's was always the property that you'd avoid. Every week, I'm reading about something phenomenal that's happening there. Now, they're, they're unveiling a rotating bar. How cool is that? We'll talk to Phil Giuliano about it straight ahead. This is the AC Report. They blew up the chicken man in Philly last night And they blew up his house too Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight Gonna see what them racket boys can do 
Now there's trouble bussing in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. It is time for our weekly look at one of the most famous, one of the most iconic cities in America. And today we're going to take a look at one of the most iconic addresses in one of that in that famous city. We're talking about a, an address that is world-renowned, world known the world over, Park Place and Boardwalk. Now, a lot of people know Park Place and the Boardwalk because of the game Monopoly. But if you've been to Atlantic City any time over the last 43 years, you know that that's also the address of Bally's. Bally's Atlantic City, a casino hotel on the Boardwalk, which, to be honest, a few years ago, those of us that love Atlantic City, those of us that would visit Atlantic City, we would walk into Bally's and sort of shake our heads and say, oh, boy. Maybe this place's best days are behind them. Maybe it's time to, I don't know, uh, put this place out of its misery. But I have to tell you, over the last year or so, the changes that have been happening at Bally's are extraordinary. And there are a whole bunch of new changes in the offing. And it's quickly making Bally's one of the go-to spots to go for all the boardwalk casinos. So I thought it might be a fun opportunity to highlight some of the things they're doing there. Who better to do it than Phil Giuliano, the executive vice president of casino operations and the chief marketing officer at Bally's Corporation. Phil, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Well, thanks for having me, Frank. But I tell you what, great minds think alike because my introductory remarks were going to zero right in on on, uh, Boardwalk and Park Place and the valley being in the center of the town and having it crumble, and how criminal that would have been should that have happened. Well, so for people that don't know the history, and we have a lot of people listening all over the country, including some folks that may not have been to Atlantic City in a while, uh, Bally's until last year was part of Caesars. Caesars sold it, uh, sold it uh, to Twin River Holdings, Twin River Gamings. Twin River actually changed their name to Bally's, which kind of creates an interesting situation in that Bally's Las Vegas is not actually owned by Bally's. But I'm wondering if you could tell folks how this transition has gone so far from being owned by Caesars to being owned by Bally's. How does the staff like it? How do the players like it? Well, you can imagine the staff. Some of them have been there 40 years. You can imagine how invigorated they are to see this once great edifice come back to life again uh, physically and, and, and culturally, too, because we do, we're doing a lot with the employees. As a matter of fact, we have a big rally on the 1st of April for the whole company, all 14 properties, and Bally will be right in the center of it. As, as we put our purpose and our values all in place, because that's just as important as physical things. But the physical stuff was really important at Valley and Atlantic City because of its one grandeur, one great grand period. It needs to return to that, and it's returning to that as I speak um, in, in a variety of ways, which I hope we get to explain to your audience. 
Now, from a gambler's perspective, that means a, a new player card system, a new comp system, right? If I if I had a Caesars card because I used to play at Bally's, like my Aunt Camille, she was a big Bally's player in the Caesars era, that's no good anymore. She has to go and get a new player's card, right? That's right. She's going to get a, join a, a club that is the most aggressive in the city where she can come up and she can get a um, will match her status, any status that she has in the city, but with any card or highest status that she has, right? Will will match the offer that she has. That's an introductory. This is all introductory, by the way. And if it, she has nothing, we'll give her twenty five dollars in free slot play. That's the promotion walking through the door today. But in addition to that, once you get in the right. system and our rewards program, we are the most aggressive in the city. There's something every day for you, uh, gifts and and gift cards and free play. And, and we, we, we have to be that way. Let's face it. The, the place, you know, fell to the bottom and, and uh, you don't have the highest price if you have the worst mousetrap. Well, we're going to have a great <laughs> mousetrap and we're going to have the lowest price. So uh, I think it's a, it's a, I wouldn't miss it if I were a player. I can tell you that. Uh, one of my favorite additions uh, to Bally's in this new era has been Jerry Longo's Meatballs and Martinis. This is a terrific restaurant. I've already been there multiple times. My mouth just waters thinking about the Longo's house-made fresh mozzarella with extra virgin olive oil, sea salt, and fresh basil. Um, uh, you guys have really upped your dining game. You not only have great Italian restaurants like that, but more casual restaurants that are getting rave reviews like like water dog what's happening dining wise yeah well the sixth level was once a great place okay up one up on the big escalator the iconic escalator that was the first big escalator i ever saw in my life back in uh, 79 well at the end of that the sixth level had fallen asleep there was guy guy Geef, guy fieri's up there which was good but it was that was it and the other place that was there uh, uh was uh uh, um, an Italian restaurant, uh, I forget the name, and they were closed all the time. And then, of course, uh, the Longo's was a closed restaurant, had been closed for years. Uh, and, and so we, we went up there and we said, we got to bring this to life and we got to give great product here, great food products, so that people find this to be a destination. So we went out to Water Dog, which is an incredibly uh, eclectic menu, kind of like a cross between a Jewish deli and and uh, an avant-garde style menu and it's it has music and it, it's just a, really a great space and then we had longos which we that's our third longos we have three of them now in our in our properties and jerry just knocks it out of the park i mean it's it's such a stimulating restaurant because you not only eat great food it also brings the music in at about seven thirty, eight o'clock people wind up dancing in the end of the night and the, and the view is magnificent. It overlooks the uh, the beach and the boardwalk and the park uh, in front of the Claridge. So it's it's really really a special place, and it's doing great. It's just being so well received. I'm so uh, proud of it. Well, and then on top well, of all the, that, on the sixth level, we have this space, this kind of like a courtyard, and you can go and listen to uh, the piano music, up upscale, up upbeat piano music. And get your food from any one of the restaurants while you're sitting there. We call it dining on the six. So it's been a home run, that space, a home well, run. It's, it's certainly a new era, unrecognizable from where Bally's was 10 years ago, that's for sure. You didn't mention the best part of uh, dining at Jerry Longo's. The food is great. The view is great. But my favorite part about it is my wife's least favorite part about it is I can play blackjack at, at dinner. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know that's another right. restaurant right. in Atlantic City where you can do that. 
Yeah, well, we have it in all three of them, and and uh, it's it's kind of like fits right in. Of course, it's there's a pictor- pictorial essay in the restaurant that shows all of Jerry's connections that he he built in, while he was in gaming up in Connecticut at Foxwoods, and you know he was dear friends of the Sopranos. He was on three episodes of the Sopranos. And, uh, uh, you know, and, I, I saw the was, pictures all over the walls and I was wondering what the what the connection was. The connection is Jerry was a, was a, a famous guy who came from South Philly and, and just latched on to all kinds of great people. And uh, and, and has, a, like I said, a, a pictorial essay of, of all the people he's been with and knows when he meets somebody, they become his friend for the, that. That person makes Jerry his friend for life, which it's an he has an amazing talent, amazing talent. And uh, yeah. we also have uh, we also have him in Kansas City in, our, in a private club in Kansas City. We have his menu and the Kansas Cityans are going crazy for it. I can imagine. It's great food. Now, one of the things uh, that I was a little disappointed by is I saw that um, there was news a couple months ago that Harry's Oyster Bar right on the boardwalk, right adjacent to Bally's was closing. And I've had so many great memories of hanging out at the boardwalk at Harry's, having a drink, watching the incredible, interesting life of the boardwalk go by. But uh, it's not as if nothing's opening there. Uh, there actually is something pretty exciting opening there. What's happening? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, congrats to the Doherty family. They have three restaurants in the city, um, so they're, they're in great shape. They, they owned Harry's and, and operated Harry's. But we made a decision that there's a demographic we had to serve that we weren't serving, and that's a younger uh, demographic. Mm. And we are, we are opening a beer hall there. That is second to none. It's called the yard and it's an indoor outdoor experience, which goes all the way to the boardwalk. So that what will happen is on Fridays and Saturday nights, perhaps Thursday nights, these bands will come in. A younger crowd will come in. They'll enjoy the beer hall, which is where the restaurant was. The inside restaurant was they'll go out into a a glass building where you can see the stars uh, uh, through the roof and, uh, and and in the in when the weather's inclement, we'll just that's as far as we'll go. When the weather's good, we'll open up the garage doors. You'll go all the way out into the courtyard to the boardwalk where stage will be uh, a, a stage will, will be uh, built and and uh, is being built as I speak. And bands will play. The great bands will play, and we will really really change the the the, the nature of that space and make it some of the most incredible energetic space on the entire boardwalk ever. Ever, right? Uh, well, really that sounds pretty. Exciting. It sounds exciting. So, is that the goal of this new to target more of a younger player or a younger patron, no. as opposed? No, no, not at all. We just think you have. In order to be successful in Atlantic City, you must be many things to many people. Okay, so those people have been forgotten in that property. There was nothing for them. They have that space now. That's the space that they'll enjoy. I think they'll interrupt. I don't think they'll bother the the the, uh, the contemporary player, uh, the the pure gambling uh, person that loves Atlantic City for gambling, because we're going to take care of those those people big time. And and uh, in, on our casino floor with all our new product, and our high limits uh, uh, table game area with all our new product and a new design and everything we've done on the casino floor. No, it's just that we think we had space that was instead of it being um, for the same style customer. We thought that we could adjust to this new and, and younger customer and, 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 and be many things to many people.
Ah, uh, now one of the things uh, that I found pretty exciting, and I'm not trying to make this a commercial for Bally's to the audience, honestly. Uh, we're not getting uh, paid by Bally's. They're not a sponsor. It, it's just I don't know of another property that has this many new and exciting things going on. Uh, but I saw this week one of the coolest things that I've seen anybody do in a long time, that you guys are actually launching a rotating bar. What is this? Tell me about this. Yeah, well, it's it's part of the whole lobby renovation, which is going to be a special, uh, uh, you know, a sense of arrival when you come in. So you come in, you see this brand new lobby done. You look at the front desk, and you're sitting, you're in awe, and you're saying, "Oh, this is beautiful. This is really nice." And all of a sudden, you're you're attracted to this this bar, and and you look at it first, and you say, "Geez, I got to have a drink there. It's real interesting." Then you look at it again. So wasn't that person sitting over there? Now they're where? Now they're now they're they're sitting over there. <laughs> Wait a minute, you know, because it rotates like the like the bar. We think it's a must-do attraction, right? If somebody told me there's a rotating bar in New Orleans, I'd make sure I went to it to have a drink there, A, because I want to have a drink, and B, because I want to have a drink at the rotating bar. Well, there is one in New Orleans, right? I think it's a Hotel Monte Leone, or, or I, I might be butchering the name. But now we have one at Bally, and I think it's a must-see attraction, must-do attraction. And we're excited is, is that, when does that open? Memorial Day. Memorial Day, uh, great. By Memorial Day, the end, end, I, of, I, end of May. I tell you, Phil, I'm going to hit you up uh, w- w- to do our show from there that weekend because that's a pretty Love exciting to time to be there. Love That'd to be great. Uh, now, it just so happens, I didn't realize this when we had made plans to talk today, that uh, yesterday I spent a lot of time talking about these new hamburger vending machines that has everybody talking about the possible future of snacking and eating going forward. Bally's has one of these hamburger vending machines? You know, if they do, they must have just got it because I don't know about uh, it. Uh, it, <laughs> it. It's possible, I, believe I, me. I, don't, I have to plead uh, uh, honesty to you. I, I really didn't know we have it, but we, we, we probably could have it. It's possible that uh, that, that I, I was misinformed. It would not be the first time. Now, um, aside from the dining, aside from the new uh, rotating bar, aside from the new beer garden, aside from uh, the new great restaurants and everything like that, what else is Hat Bally's in you know this spring, this summer that people are going to want to check out? What's new for people that either haven't been there in a while or maybe have never been there that you're really proud of? Uh, the most important element, the overnight guest. We've renovated the entire tower of rooms. I stayed there Sunday night. Gorgeous, beautiful rooms. The best view in the entire city. And they're, they're, they're so well appointed and so well done. I'm so excited about it. Um, you know, they, we ha- and, and 16 brand new suites uh, for our premium players. But we have these corner rooms. And I couldn't understand why they were so special. I kept walking in and said, my God, these rooms are beautiful. They're fabulous. Can't wait till they're redecorated. They're all redecorated. Why are they so great? I realize we have, we have tubs, uh, soaking tubs in, in the bathroom, but our bathroom has wall-to-wall windows. So, hmm. you know, think about it. What hotel room have you been in recently that had wall-to-wall outdoor windows that, that connected to the, to the out, outside? So you sit in the tub and you look out at the view. It's, it's an incredible, incredible experience, and we're so excited about it. And, um, and that's, that's a big part of that in addition to, to everything else, we've got a ton of promotions. We have entertainment back. Entertainment hadn't been there in 11 years. And we, 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 we put entertainment in our 1,200-seat showroom. It's an intimate type of setting. And uh, it's, it's, it's right up on the 6th where all the restaurants are. 
So it creates a great experience up there. It really, uh, uh, you know, back to that that vibrancy that was missing is now an element of ballot. No, that, that's pretty exciting. Now, uh, this is another question that uh, I don't know the answer to, so uh, I, I have no idea if this is going to be the kind of answer that I like or don't like. But, you know, I'm a craps player, and one of the things that I have been shaking my head at is at a lot of the other Atlantic City casinos, they no longer pay you five times craps odds on all the numbers. They do it only on the six and the eight, and then they do the four on the five and the nine, and then the three on the four and the 10. And I, I always felt that was such a, a a a tough thing because the four and the 10 are the toughest to come out, and yet they pay the least amount of money. Bally's, even when it was struggling, always was pretty good with the craps odds. What's the story oh, with the odds at the craps table now? 10 times odds. 10 times odds. Not ten even five, odds. ten times odds no, on no, all the numbers. Odds. Ten times odds on all the numbers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's, uh, that it's, game, is... it's a craps game we believe in. We, we just, uh, we, we, in addition, in blackjack, we, we're all, almost, I think it's almost finished. We also have a progressive blackjack game where, you know, where the, there's big jackpots that you can hit, and we have a $25 progressive side bet that you can bet. Everybody has five dollars. We have twenty-five dollar progressive side bet. You can bet, and uh, we're on thirty-three games. So we're excited about that too. Um, uh-huh. And then, of course, we have tremendous uh, uh, Bakra action. I don't know if you've been in to see our Asian friends are are playing. You know, in a beautiful new area, new high limit pit that we redid, and uh, we have a tremendous action in there. Our table game. Uh, well, I- I don't know that I qualify for the high limit pit, but I am a baccarat player, so I'm looking forward to checking uh, checking that out as well. You, you, you want to play baccarat? You want to play at Bally? Trust me, uh, uh, Phil. And by the way, people just tuning in, we're talking with Phil Giuliano. He's the executive vice president of casino operations and the chief marketing uh, officer over at Bally's. A lot of exciting things happening there. Uh, this new rotating bar starting Memorial Day, renovated rooms, new dining options. It's an exciting place to be, uh, Phil. Obviously, your neighboring casinos are owned by other people. You're touching casinos owned by Caesars. You're a stone's throw away from uh, from resorts and other casinos that are owned by other folks. I know years ago in the um, early days of Atlantic City especially, there was a great deal of competition among all the casinos for the players, for the overnight guests, for the entertainment. I've noticed uh, that it seems in the most more recent years, there's a new spirit of cooperation that exists under the different casino owners. I'm wondering if you can speak to that at all, Phil. Are are you cooperating and trying to work with the folks at Hard Rock, the folks at Caesars, or is it still kind of every casino for himself? Well, in some respects, there's two answers to this. One is hell no, we're not cooperating with them. (laughs) And, and another one is another one is we're cooperating in the most in, uh, 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 cooperative way in the history of mankind to make Atlantic City better, to make the package that these casinos are in better, in, in making the city clean, making sure the city is clean, is safe, and is as beautiful as it can be. And, and that's where we're cooperating, and that's where we want to work together to make sure. When someone arrives down the expressway or from the White Horse Pike or the Black Horse Pike, they drive into this. The fantasy begins uh, as you see the, you know, the 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 the, um, the the cityscape as you're driving in. You know, you see it and and it looks great from afar. We want it to look great close up. 
and and we want to make sure that that uh, you know the streets are paved, the lights work, all that stuff that's critical for for us to be successful. That's where we cooperate. When it comes to customers, we fight like cats and dogs. Okay. <laughs> uh, how is it? And- no cooperation. No, hey, uh, I love it. I love that spirit of competition. I think the big winner is going to be the uh, the player. Um, how is Atlantic City doing now? There's a lot of folks in our audience who haven't been to Atlantic City in a while, and they remember uh, sometimes when you'd walk off the boardwalk or off Atlantic or Pacific, you know, a feeling of being unsafe, that it was not a place that you'd like to hang out, especially with a family. Is that still the case? How do you find Atlantic City's yeah. doing overall now? Well, our mayor is really interested in, in getting it safer, and I understand they've hired more um, uh, Class Two officers. I believe they are, um, you know, to parole the boardwalk and uh, patrol the boardwalk. Excuse me, patrol the boardwalk, and also to make sure that that, that the streets are safe. So there's there's keen interest, in that, and they just uh, a no tolerance uh, situation on Atlantic Avenue. Uh, they just uh, installed that, so they're doing things that are positive. We just want to make sure that they understand we, that, that we'll cooperate as much as we have to to make sure that we reach that level of, of uh, cleanliness and safety that's, that's second to none. So, uh, you know, we have only four years until uh, New York will have some kind of casinos in the, in the lower counties and pro- probably in one, the one or two of the boroughs of, uh, man, of uh, New York. So consequently, uh, and then perhaps in in, in uh, the Meadowlands. So we better do it right because Atlantic mm. City can always be a destination. It can always be a destination, and it can always be a great spot for meeting business and convention business. But it's got to sparkle in every way, and uh, um, you know. So I think that that that's that, that's my take on that. And now, what's your background, Phil? I know you're uh, kind of a, a local fella in that uh, I could hear the accent, and I know you went to LaSalle. But uh, have you worked in other gambling markets before Atlantic City in your previous role with Twin River? Well, I'm born and raised in Atlantic City, and my first job was in, in, in Atlantic City in the casinos back in, in 1981. Okay, I'm dating myself. But, Love it. Uh, and then worked in town for a long time. And I did spend um, four and a half years in Chicago, uh, Chicago land, I should say. It's actually a Northwest Indiana casino, working for the very famous Jack Binion and Horseshoe. And that was a great run. And then I, I ended up up in New England at Twin River, working for my my uh, my boss, and my who came, became my dear friend, George Papineer, uh, who's the president of the Casino and Resorts Division of uh, of Bally. And uh, I worked up there and used to fly, live up there. Then I flew up there. And then we all of a sudden, uh, our chairman, Sue Kim, uh, decided we were going to grow this company like in, in, in the shortest period of time I could ever imagine you'd get 14 casinos, which was in a, probably in a matter of about, you know, the, t- the last 10 were in a matter of about two years or three years. So, you know, that's 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 pretty much it. But m- my heart is, is in Atlantic City and always will be. You know, I didn't I didn't leave town till I was 35 years old. So I I grew up about three blocks away from Bali, you know, so. uh, Yeah, that's my background. How does working in the casino business in Atlantic City compare to working in other gambling jurisdictions? That's a lot harder. You You know, you got nine competitors within a few miles of one another. And, uh, you know, you have a. 
a lot of competition around us. You know, I worked in the glory days when the market was 5.2 billion, and then Pennsylvania opened up and immediately, and 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 the uh, and the recession of of 2008 hit, and uh, you know, Katie barred the door. You know, it was it was a whole new ball game. So it's uh, and then it was on its way back uh, before the pandemic it was growing again off of its bottom. I think the bottom was about 2.4 billion or 2.6. And then it was on its way back to, I thought, $3 billion, and then the pandemic hit. So now it's got to recover from that. And uh, But it's resilient. I mean, and I think it's ready to bust out big time this summer, uh, this this uh, this spring, uh, and as the weather turns. We're seeing some evidence Correct. of that on the weekends. You know, so I really think uh, we'll get back on track, and, uh, and uh, the whole region will be better for it. And uh, lastly, all the COVID restrictions, the masks and everything like that, that's all lifted at this point. People are able to yes. free, freely associate and gamble and dine just the way yes. as they would pre-2020. That's, that's great. Right. That's uh, right. uh, Phil, I can't wait to uh, meet you in person. Can't wait to do our show from there. Congratulations about all the things that are happening at Bally's. Please keep us posted on whatever develops next. Something tells me it's not going to be long until we speak again with you announcing something else new. Frank, thank you so much for having me. And uh, the new Bally's, Bally is back. Okay. Uh, thank you. Very exciting. I'll see you out there, folks. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. It's so interesting to me what people hear and don't hear. I mean, because we were here, we hear everything. But a guy called in last Friday or whenever, I think, last week, and he said, oh, I love that song by the Swan Silvertones that you play in four, at 4 o'clock. Uh, you know, can, can I get a copy of it? And we said, sure, give me your address, we'll send you a copy. And somebody commented on Facebook, it's always the same music at 4 o'clock. I don't like it. I change the channel. Now, I thought that's got to be the most preposterous thing I've ever heard. One, you just heard about maybe, maybe 30 seconds of a song. Maybe. Now, would 30 seconds of music really drive you so crazy that you change the channel? I mean, really, chill out. If that's the case, then you're wound too tight. Additionally, um, I we play another song at the top of every other hour. But nobody's complaining about that top of the hour open. And I just got an email here from someone who clearly listens to the show fairly regularly. And Michelle, and she writes, I love it when you do Atlantic City segments. I wish you would do, do one once a week. Now, Michelle, I'm not sure how it's possible to not know this if you listen to this show as often as you do. We do do the AC report once a week. 
every Thursday at 3.30, you will hear the AC report each and every week. We do do it. It's one of our marquee benchmarks. Time after time after time after time after time. Listen to Dominic every Thursday at 3.30. Now, a couple of things I want to get to before we get to the $1,000 minute and before we um, do some other exciting things. Wally Green is going to be here. I can't wait to meet Wally Green. I got to give credit to Curtis. Curtis called me last week, or it might have been over the weekend. He says, this guy, Wally Green, is incredible. Wow. He's a a ping pong pro, grew up in the projects, and used ping pong to lift himself up from poverty. And I looked into him, and I immediately became fascinated. I said, oh, maybe he'll come on the show. Sure enough, he's coming in. He's going to be here in 20 minutes. Can't wait uh, to talk with him. That's going to be a lot of fun. Now, um, I got a lot of publicity last week, or we got a lot of publicity, the show and the station, for the interview that I did with Paul Manafort. Apparently, not everybody was a fan. Evidently, Randy Rhodes, who was very big with Air America, and I actually liked Randy Rhodes' radio show. I thought of all the hosts on Air America, she was the, uh, she was the most talented talk show host. Well, evidently, she now does a show on free speech TV, which is, I don't even know what that is, um, but you know, it doesn't mean it's not a big thing. I, I'm a little out of touch. But she was on free speech TV, and she's tearing me apart and Paul Manafort and the radio station for having Paul, Paul Manafort on. I mean, this is what went on on the Randy Rhodes show Yesterday, this is courtesy of Free Speech TV. And Manafort is sitting on, on, on radio shows saying, yeah, you know, I made $60 million in Ukraine. I'm not trying to hide it, but Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with this, but the prosecutors in your case allege that between 2010 and 2014, you made $60 million from working in Ukraine. Is that about right? I mean, I, honestly, I don't know how much it was. I mean, but the numbers they were using, I was, the, I managed a whole bunch of things, including the lobbyists who were filed and were rep- doing the lobbying, not me, uh, in Washington. And, uh, and so they took the lump sum money as if it was all coming into my pocket. And it, I was running a major enterprise of, of, of lobbyists in Europe to become part of Ukraine, uh-huh. lobbyists in Washington to, to, to help them understand what was going on and what Ukraine was trying to do to become part of the European Union, uh-huh. uh, as well as political consulting as a number of things as well. So that number, <laughs> I, and I don't know if 60 is correct over those four years or not, but, but that was well. not all my money. It, Got it. I, I did well I, and, and openly did well. I didn't I didn't hide it. Yeah, you did. And that's why you were uh, convicted. You were convicted of money laundering. I mean, the liars never stop lying. They just never do. They don't know how. And he's, oh, oh no, I did some political consult. Yes, for Victor Yanushenko. And your client ended up being tried for treason and found guilty of treason in Ukraine. Oh, no, I ran a giant enterprise. Yes, out of a luxury office building in the Donbass region, uh, you know, which is totally aligned with Putin. Oh, my God, these people, they never stop. And, he, you know, the, this, this interviewer from uh, WABC didn't even, and I listened to the whole damn thing. Yeah, I did, so you didn't have to. But, oh, my God. Didn't even get ask him, why were you thrown off a plane the other day? Where were you going? Oh, I was going to Dubai. Why were you going to Dubai? To run away from what I caused in Ukraine? <laughs> 
<laughs> try and make more business deals. Maybe sell some oil and gas back to Ukraine now. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, you didn't make it to Dubai. What happened there? What happened there? Now, Randy Rhodes, as, in, in spite of the dismissive tone that she has of me there, she clearly has a very high opinion of my abilities as not only an interviewer, but a time traveler. Because you need only look at the date of the interview to see that that interview took place before Paul Manafort was thrown off the plane. How could I have asked him about being thrown off a plane (laughs) going to Dubai if that wasn't even reported? It hadn't even happened by the time that I interviewed him. And uh, look, I'm not Paul Manafort's lawyer. Uh, Paul Manafort was not convicted of money laundering. He was convicting, uh, covering, uh, uh, filing false tax returns, bank fraud, uh, and failing to disclose a foreign bank account. And we covered those charges in the interview. And he believes, and again, you could take it for what it's worth, he believes that those were more civil violations that that he had based on information that he had voluntarily given to the government long before this prosecution. So I'm flattered to be mentioned uh, by somebody that I used to listen to so regularly, was always a big fan of Randy Rhodes, and I'm flattered that she listened to the entire hour-long interview that I did with Paul Manafort. But I'm surprised that's all she took from it. Her only criticism of me is, is that we didn't ask him about the airplane. Airplane happened after. So, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, and then apparently she went on to criticize WABC. She was going on about how we gave him too much airtime and how the station is so far right. And I don't think that's true at all. I, I think an hour is just enough time for a substantive conversation. That's my view. You don't have to agree. 800-848-WABC. So I want to follow up on that story that uh, that I brought up with Dr. Sky. Drudge has now linked uh, to this story. I find this pretty interesting. Uh, this is – so there's this professor at Temple, and I'm not going to get into the story in depth now because I reached out to him yesterday, and I'm hoping he'll come on this show. Dr. David Jacobs has written a number of books. He's He's a professor of history at Temple. He's written a number of books on alien abductions, interviewing subjects of alien abduction about their experiences, and he claims to have formed a sinister conclusion from their testimony. Apparently, well, let me see what he says in this clip here. This is from Glenn uh, Glenn Beck's network, The Blaze. It's on. They did a documentary called "Extraordinary: The Revelations During UFO Week" on uh, on The Blaze, and this is what. Dr. David Jacobs. People say the most of all the crazy things to say, not knowing that other people are saying this too, is crowd control. When they get older, they will be required to stand on the corner of a street. There will be a large number of humans or of people running down the street, and your job is to say, just keep going, just keep moving, just keep moving. Uh, everything will be okay. Just keep moving. That's what their job will be in the future. You have to try to imagine if this is coming out of people's imaginations and it's not happening. 
crowd control would not be the number one memory that they had about what's going to happen in the future. It's just nonsensical. Then they were beginning to change a little bit and say other things too, not knowing that other people were changing. Then they began to change a lot, not knowing what other people were changing. And what they were describing was that the ones on board who looked really, really human were coming down and trying to learn what it's like to walk among us, to be human. And at that point, I knew it's integration into the society prior to takeover. That's the best way I can say it. They can control us, and we can't control them. They are superhumans, so to speak, and uh, we aren't. So David Jacobs is essentially saying there that they're abducting humans from the planet and subsequently using mind control. And an alien species is preparing essentially to take over the Earth. This is a quote. We have spread around the world and conquered as much as we can. We don't know whether this is true of other beings or not, but it certainly is true of what humans have done. My best guess, and this is a guess, is that, yeah, they're doing the same thing. This is what they do just like us. He went on to claim that he had spoken to huge numbers of abductees who had told him that in the future they would have a job to do. That's a quote. So um, take it for what you will. And uh, we've invited Mr. Dr. Jacobs on this show in order to uh, to get a little more in-depth on this story. You want to comment on it? 848-WABC, that's 800-848-9222. Two other uh, items that I'd love to get your take on. I'm sure you saw the story that Alec Baldwin and his wife, Hilaria, are having a, another child. Now... Alec Baldwin is how old is he? He's I think he's he's in his sixties. I think he's sixty three. No, he's yeah, he's gonna be this week he's gonna be sixty four. So he's gonna be sixty four and he's having a child. Now, I'm younger than sixty four, but I gotta tell you, looking after one child takes all of my energy. Now, Alec and Hilaria have, this is going to be their seventh child. Plus, he has at least one with his previous wife, Kim Basinger. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, I I don't know how active a dad Alec Baldwin is. But even if he's inactive, to have a newborn at 64 years old, I got to think that's pretty taxing. But then I thought about, um, we have seen other folks who have had children at older ages. Al D'Amato, I believe, had a a child at at 70. I believe Larry King had a child at uh, at around, uh, around 70. And I'm curious if anyone in our audience has done this, has either had a child... Later in life, I'm saying over the age of 60 to have a newborn. I mean, I think that's that's old to have. And what your experience was like, because I'd be afraid. I mean, if I was 63, I mean, I'd be afraid that, you know, I wouldn't be around when this 
young my child needed me. You know, I, I'd like to think. I mean, obviously, one never knows what the future holds. I could die, God forbid, in a car accident driving home tonight. But you know, I'd like to think I have a pretty good chance of being around to see Carmine graduate college at the very least. So, or or whatever path he's on around the time he's twenty one, if he chooses not to go to college, so be it. But uh, I don't really. I'd be terrified if I was 64 having my first child. And again, I know he has significant financial resources and, you know, they can hire, I'm sure, people to help and so forth. But I'm curious if this has, uh, if anyone else has observed this up close or is this something only celebrities do? Have a child at 63. Didn't need to hear that. 800-848-WABC. Mick Jagger had a kid at 77. Yeah, that, I, I just, I can't wrap my head around that. I think of this. He has great grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, so can you imagine that? Your son is younger than your great-grandchild. That is wild. That's wild. Um, so 802. So that's the one area I'd love a little your perspective, your opinion, your commentary on. The other is, you know what tomorrow is? April 1st. Now, Different people have written to me with suggestions for different radio April Fool's jokes. I don't know that that's really me, honestly. I mean, I I, I always found that to be kind of corny. And even hosts that I've really liked that have tried to do April Fool's jokes, I don't know. It's never really come across well. It's never been believable, really. And so I'm curious if you remember anybody on the radio doing something really clever and really fun for April Fools or even in the office or around the house a prank that you pulled on a coworker or a family member that they actually went for. Honestly, in all my years of um paying attention to this stuff I don't really ever remember getting fooled by anything on April Fool's Day. Maybe there was one instance where um, a a, a co-worker of of a job I had when I was working with the Brooklyn Cyclones told me that I had missed my window for getting paid and I wasn't cognizant of what the day is. And he told me something like, um, oh, no, I'm sorry, in order to get paid for all that work, you would have had to put in an invoice by, you know, within March. And I said, isn't it still March? And he said, no, it's April. Today's April 1st. And then I was hip to the gag once he told me it was April 1st. But I'm curious if you've ever seen an April Fool's prank, either by a radio personality or someone in your personal life or your professional life that you thought was really effective and really good. 800-848-9222. Comment on any of that. Old parents, this alien abduction theory, Randy Rhodes critiquing my lack of being able to see the future, um, or or April Fool's jokes. 800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Sam on Long Island. Hello, Sam. Hi, how are you, Frankie? Hanging in there, Sam. Thanks. That's good. That's good. So my teacher had this man who lived next door to him on the Upper West Side uh, for years when he was growing up, and he, ne- he never had a kid, and his wife, either they got divorced or she died, 
And this was around a year ago, or just actually a year and a half ago. He married a girl, you know, a lady, I guess, who was around maybe 37 or something. And he's 94, and he had a, a baby boy. Really? At, at what age? 94. He was 90. That's what I thought you said. I wanted to make sure. 94 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what are you doing at 94 having a child? Well, at least he did it, you know. Oh, my goodness. I I can't imagine it. Cannot imagine it. I mean, whatever works. Whatever works. I am the least judgmental person self-proclaimed on Earth. Uh I just think it's unfair to the kid. What are you going to be around at most? Ten years? Seven years? And then you force, you know, the kid to grow up without a father? Ah, I would not do that. 800-848-WABC. Peter is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Peter. Hey, good morning, uh, Frank. Um, yeah, uh, parenthetically, it's not what I called about. Charlie Chaplin had children when he was very old also. Yeah, how old was he? I, I don't know. He was well into his 70s, I believe. I know he married a teenager or something uh, at a really old he married, age. Uh, he married Una O'Neill, who was the, uh, the son of, uh, of uh, the writer. The daughter, yes. The da- <laughs> right. Sorry. That would have been, been a major scandal back then. Yeah, well, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, but uh, yeah, she was Eugene O'Neill's daughter. Uh, What I did call about was uh, on-air radio pranks that uh, went over big. Well, tell me. You with me? Yeah, I'm listening. (laughs) The most obvious one, Orson Welles, War of the World. You know, uh, John Katsimatidis and I were talking about this on the Bernie and Sid show on Friday, and uh, honestly, that wasn't really a prank. Uh, Orson Welles kept saying during the show that they, they, they didn't pretend that that was really happening, that the newspapers twisted it into like he was trying to fool people. He wasn't. They said several times throughout the broadcast that this was just an entertainment show. Are you I. I I sorry, Peter. Truth hurts. Jimmy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jimmy. Hey, Frankie. Good morning. Uh, great show as usual. Uh, Frank, I got a good friend of mine, a guy that uh, I knew very well. We used to hang out a lot when I was younger. He's about fifteen years old than I am. Anyway, he's sixty-five years old. Okay. He's married to a woman that is 35 years old, and she's now just about six months pregnant. Uh, The the strange thing about Frank is that I'm imagining fast forward 15 years from now when this kid is going to be 15 years old. He's going to have an 80-year-old father. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, like, how is, uh, you know, I mean... He's in good shape. Don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, but that's he's sixty-five. But again, fast forward fifteen years, is he going to be able to go out to the backyard and have a catch with the kid? Is he going to be able to run alongside the bike and teach him how to ride a bike? Is he going to, you know, the things that a father 
would normally right. do with right. a child when you're in your 20s or 30s or maybe even early 40s, something like that, you know. But I just find it, you know, I, I, he's spoken to me about it, and my answers to him, especially with the questions that he asked me, I didn't pull any punches. I said to him the things that I just said to you. And I certainly didn't say it to hurt his feelings, but it was reality, you know. Uh, so I was kind of like, in other words, you really think this is the best idea, mm-hmm. you know. And he's like, well, I, this is really what she wants. She wants a child so bad. They are obviously madly in love with each other uh, because he's by no means a wealthy man. So it's not like she's after his money or anything like that. So uh, it's just a very odd situation, Frank, and uh, I personally do not agree with it. Well, look, again, I don't like to judge anybody. It's not something that I could ever see myself doing. I'll I'll say that for all the reasons that you stated. I'd love to hear from someone. And thanks for the call, Jimmy. I'd love to hear from someone that's done this or knows of someone that's done it. And it's worked out for them, where it's been great. I'd love to hear that. But 77 for Mick Jagger, 94 for that other guy, 70 for Al D'Amato, even 63 for Alec Baldwin. I just, I can't imagine it. Again, the amount of energy it takes to care for a four-month-old. And this is a kid that doesn't even crawl yet. I'm exhausted by the time I get to work. Um. I can't imagine doing that at 63. 800-848-WABC, what do you think? Hey, Charlie Finch has something to say on the subject of April Fool's pranks. Good morning, Charlie. I got both, uh, Frank. Good morning. Um, It was my favorite holiday as a kid. Every year I'd say to my mom, there's a pink monkey in my room that came through the window. I think she believed me one year. (laughs) Um, April Fool's, of course, the Mets' Sid Finch. No relation, Sports Illustrated, my friend George Clinton. Greatest April Fool's ever, right? Remember that? Re- well, remind it's me been... of that one. I don't know that I do remember okay, that. Sports I... Illustrated, April 1, cover story, the Mets signed Sid Finch. Oh, right, not, this not phenom this, that threw 107 moving miles an hour or George, something. Okay. Yep, now moving on to the old guys. My best friend from Yale, 52 years, Barney Conrad, 70 this year. 57, he, he and Martha Sullivan had their son, Jack. They're on my team. Born in vitro with a surrogate mother mm. with his sperm. Love Jack. I mean, my grandkids are almost as old as Jack. They just got back from Antigua. They're in better health than me. And what about Tony Quinn in his 90s and uh, Tony Randall in his 80s? Love you, Frank. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, again, the more I hear about this, it sounds like it's something that you can only really pull off well if you have a lot of money, I mean, 57 is not 77, 57. OK. All right. You know, again, once you get the kid through the, his formative years or her formative years. All right. Fine. If you're not around for, to do things. OK. But 77, 63, 70. Uh, I, I just I can't imagine. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment. Hey, um, we're going to do the $1,000 Minute now. Uh, so we're going to give you, if you want to try your hand at answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, be the seventh caller right now 
to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And um, if you don't win, then we have another pair of tickets to give away to either Tommy James and the Shondells or um, Felix Cavalieri and the Rascals at the Palladium Times Square. Uh, I'll get you the dates of the show, but it's uh, it's really neat. It's uh, it's right in the heart of Broadway. So I would call in. You could win the thousand dollars. We've had people win the thousand dollars, but the greater likelihood is you're probably going to end up with these tickets to um, Felix Cavalieri's The Rascals and Mickey Dolan's same night or Tommy James and the Shondells. So uh, both great events. And uh, if you want to buy these tickets yourself, you can go to Ticketmaster.com or uh, and just search, you know, the Palladium Times Square and you can enter the promo code radio and you'll be able to save 10 to 20 percent. So it's a, a great concert and you have your choice of, um, you know, either the either the. Tommy James concert that's on May 7th or the Rascals and the Monkeys that is on June 3rd. So uh, we'll go ahead and give some lucky, lucky person an opportunity to win. But uh, uh, Randy on Long Island has been patiently waiting. Let me get to Randy. Hello, Randy. Frankie. Randy. How are you, sir? I'm hanging in there. Uh, listen, uh, right on. Great show. I just started listening. I'm uh, going to work. Uh, I'm actually a workaholic and operating engineer. But I have a wonderful wife, three kids. About 15 years ago, when my kids were young. My wife was at home, Mom. I'm working like a dog, full-blown, focused workaholic. I live next to a beautiful school, and there's a lot of property in the back of it. And a lot of kids were having issues there hanging out late at night. I get up early. It's like I get up right now, 2.30. I'm already on the road. But back then, I get up. I go out, not even realizing that it's April full, you know, April 1st. And my car is gone. I have a 240 red XS, uh, XX, XSE Nissan. It's a sporty car. I kept it really nice. My car is gone. I go, I just, I'm, I'm pacing around outside my house. Can't believe it. So I go inside. I'm like, Helen, Helen, you know, trying not to wake everybody, my three kids up. I'm like, they took my car. I can't find my car. She's like, you got to be kidding me. I said, you're going to have to give me my keys because I did utility work for Con Edison. I had a really, uh, you know, important job that day. So she's like, gets up to, to give me her keys. And then she starts laughing. I'm like, what are you laughing about? <laughs> she goes, you came home, you passed out. She goes, me and the kids, we took the car. We went around the corner. It's around the corner. Oh, that's she a good one. My own keys. That's a pretty and good I one. To God, that's that... one of the only times I ever got nailed on it. That's a good one. In fact, You've inspired me. Maybe I'll try that with my wife today. Uh, although she puts oh up with enough God. either. That's that's a good but one. You gotta actually. be really. You know, you know what I mean. You, you can't be realize that it's April Fools. You know, right, it, right. It well, that's why timing. I'm thinking maybe I'll try it when I get home, and then this way, w- when she first wakes up, she may not realize what what the date is. There you go. I'm going to work on that, Randy. You've inspired me. Thank you. If she doesn't listen to this podcast this far in, which she usually doesn't make it all the way this in. This far in, then I'm going to do that for tomorrow. All right. Uh, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. 
Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Moore. Ah, yes, that's right. Let's meet today's contestant, Kevin in Manhattan. Hello, Kevin. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Kevin. You're you're up on this contest, right? You know what to do? Yes. All right. Uh, the timer will start after I ask the first question. You get a question right. I'm just moving on to the next one. You ready to go? Ready. What do you get if you freeze water? Hi. What is a young dog called? Puppy. What is the last name of the WABC talk show host named Dominic? Carter. Where is the Great Pyramid of Giza located? Egypt. Who starts first in chess? White. What was the first toy to be advertised on television? Uh, hula hoop. Unfortunately not, Kevin. It was Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head. Good guess, though. You got five right, and you did it within 30 seconds. You were on a pretty good pace. Uh, But you still won the tickets to either Tommy James or the Rascals. Are you a fan of either Tommy James or the Rascals? Actually, no. No, you're not. Do you not not want the tickets, then? No, I would rather pass on them. All right. We're going to put you on hold. We'll give... We'll give uh, we'll give you uh, a consolation prize from our WABC merchandise uh, store, and um, we'll see. Uh, hey, Paul in Staten Island, do you want to go see the Rascals? Do I want to go see the Rascals? Yes. Who, who are the Rascals? <laughs> Lauren in New Jersey, do you want to go see the Rascals? Uh, no, but I want to talk about War of the Worlds for a minute. Go ahead. Go ahead. Greatest, because you're a radio person. I grew up around uh, Kenny Delmar, and Kenny was uh, FDR on War of the Worlds. And then uh, Fred Allen people. So also, I grew up around Backstage Wife, that was Claire Neeson, and uh, The Sheriff, which was uh, Bob Haig, and then a bunch of the people from Fred Allen. So, All right, Lauren, group. is there a reason you didn't turn your radio off for this call? Because uh, I have lung cancer and my oxygen is... Ah, playing the lung cancer card. Playing the lung cancer card. Is it off? Yes, it should be off, though. Is I agree it, that it should. I agree that it should, unfortunately. Okay, but it isn't? Lauren, uh, no. But, Lauren, uh, I, good luck with the lung cancer. I appreciate you calling. Thank you for the perspective. Wally Green is here. Uh, we're going to... You know what we'll do? We're just going to give the tickets uh, to the seventh person that calls in now uh, because Kevin and Paul and Lauren all squandered their opportunity. Seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. You have a choice of tickets for the Rascals or for Tommy James and the Shondells. Wally Green is here. We're going to talk ping pong and pistols and gangs and North Korea and all that fun stuff. This is the other side of midnight straight ahead.
get up early to get my game on. Got a lucky blue shirt with my sponsors and my name on. My four hands like fire. I call this is the hard. world's first ping pong rap song. And I am very, very pleased uh, to be joined by the artist responsible for this song, Wally Green. He's a lot more than a rapper. He is a celebrity table tennis pro. He's an entertainer, a rapper, and yes, a diplomacy maker. If we ever make peace, if there's ever peace on the North, on the Korean Peninsula, it will probably be due to Wally Green, either him or Dennis Rodman, maybe the two of them together. Uh, Wally Green joins me uh, this morning in studio. Hello, Wally. Hey, how are you, man? I'm doing great. It's great to meet you. I've become a big fan in a short amount of time. I am a, a big ping pong fan. I enjoy playing. I'm not that good, but I really enjoy the game, and I've really enjoyed watching a lot of your matches on, on YouTube over the last few days. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. So now, uh, give folks a little bit of uh, the picture into your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Marble Projects in Brooklyn. Uh, rough rough project, that was. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, it pretty rough. And you, your childhood wasn't exactly a bed of roses. There was some domestic violence in your house. Yeah, I, uh, my stepfather was a, was an abuser, and he used to abuse my mom. He used to beat up my mom, and uh, tell me every single day that I would either be dead or in jail, and that would never amount to anything. So you know, I grew up with that, and that kind of led me into gangs and guns at an early age. Uh, how old is an early age for um, gangs and guns? Probably by 13, I already own six guns at 13. Six years. guns at 13. Yeah. <laughs> and you're in a gang. Yeah. Um, now, what would you think you were looking to join a gang as a form of uh, escaping the difficult time you were having at home? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I just really hated my stepfather so much, and I had a lot of anger in me. And um, the gang was more of like my family because mm. my mom didn't really protect me. And my mom was uh, usually uh, first maybe sort of on my side, but then, you know, they go upstairs and do what they do. And then all of a sudden I'd be the one in trouble for no reason. So um, I always got the, the raw end of the stick. And uh, my gang was just, it was just my, like my family, you know, people that I could just talk to and hang out and do dumb stuff with. Do you think that's why a lot of people end up joining gangs? Um, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, for sure. I, I think if uh, things aren't right at home, then um, kids look for something else. And, you know, getting into a gang is, 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 is a very easy outlet for any kid to get into. Now, you have, uh, from a very humble beginning in the Marlboro Projects and in Brooklyn, you have gone all over the world. You've known celebrities. You're something of a celebrity yourself. You have um, done incredible things, really all due to your prowess playing the game of ping pong or and, and, and table tennis. Now, most people that I know that get as good at something as you are at ping pong – they start at a very young age. You know, you hear stories about Willie Mays, how before he could even walk, his father was pushing him a ball and making him throw it back. Um, that wasn't the case for you. You didn't start playing ping pong at three, four, five years old, did you? No, I didn't. Um, I, I started at 17 years old. 17? Yeah. <laughs> I started at 17. Um, the reason, uh, one of the reasons why I... Um, got good at ping pong really quickly is because the other I had two outlets um, from the abuse. Uh, the first outlet was my gang. The second outlet was sports. So 
when I was in school, I joined every sport I could play because if I joined a lot of sports, then I wouldn't have to be uh, home as much, right? Because you get up early in the morning, you go to practice, you know, after school, you stay late, you practice. By the time you come home, you're kind of numb to all the nonsense going home. So I just joined every single sport in school and, and I was good at sports. But when I was in school, I hated ping pong. I used to make fun of the kids that played ping pong. Really? They, so they had ping pong at yeah, your school? Yeah, they... they, they <laughs> They had the kids in the lunchroom playing ping pong in in school. So, like, uh, when I was playing football, I used to walk out. Uh, we used to go through the lunchroom to get to the field, and I would see the kids playing ping pong, and I would go, man, look at these kids with their short shorts and a stick. I used to make fun of the kids playing ping pong. Hope they don't see me now. <laughs> so then what happened at 17? How did you not just start playing ping pong but but get so good at it? Oh, man. So uh, to make a long story short, um, a particular individual wanted to help me, um, and he saw that um, I was going towards a very dark place uh, along the lines of what my stepfather said, either dead or in jail. And um, he paid for me to go to Germany to learn ping pong. So that's how I got into the sport. But I found ping pong at a pool hall. I, I, I thought so. You know, growing up, I, I had a lot of issues, and I took out my anger on everyone. Everything that happened in my house, I blamed everyone else for it. Um, I started shooting pool one year, and um, I thought I was really good, but I wasn't. And I uh, got upset, <laughs> and I took the pool stick. I just tapped on the table. The pool stick shattered, and uh, I got really upset, and I saw some kids playing ping pong. And, <laughs> and so I went up to them and said, hey. I want to play, but I wasn't, I didn't really want to play. I was being a bully. And the kid said, Oh, do you play this? I was like, I don't play this. I just want to get a hit. And so the kid gave me the racket. And when he hit the ball to me, I meant to hit the ball at him, but the ball went on the table and the kid was like, Oh man, that was a great shot. You got to go. There's a ping pong club and you got to go check this ping pong. I'm like, what do you mean? Is there's a what? Like there's a place where people actually gather to play this. And, uh, I couldn't believe it, but, um, the athlete in me said, you know what, let, let me go check it out. And I did. And when I saw it for the first time, I saw people standing back from the table, you know, hitting the ball, boom, boom. Well, I've seen those guys noise. at spin. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. always in awe. I sit and spin. Exactly. I sit at spin and just watch in, in awe of what goes on there. So you really became a great ping pong player in Germany. That's how you got so good? Yeah, that's where I first started. I, 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 I got sent there. I went and I lived in a sports school. So uh, not only did I get better at ping pong and learn the sport, that was the first change of my mindset from being this angry kid to uh, someone who is maybe a bit more bearable. Mm. Well, uh, you know, you talk about changing your mindset. Is there any sort of advice that you can give our listeners about how they might be able to change their own mindset to do some great things or deal with some adversity in their own life or channel some anger issues or loneliness issues or depression or whatever they might be experiencing. How do you just kind of flick a switch and change your mind like that? Um, I mean, it, it doesn't happen overnight, but um, I always say that, you know, we have to win the fight that's within ourselves. You know, there, there, there's winning at sport, there's winning at love, winning, at et cetera. But until you win that fight within yourself, then you won't be able to change your mindset. So you have to really focus on yourself and not blame the rest of the world for the things that you're going through. And then you'll be able to change your mindset. Because once I could understand that the whole world doesn't hate me and not everyone is out to get me, then that's 
how I could finally change the mindset. It's so interesting to me that you became this good at uh, ping pong in spite of not playing till you're a teenager, late teenager. Uh, I'm re- reminded I, I met Lawrence Taylor a couple times, and he told me he never even played football until he was 15. And now a lot of people consider him the greatest linebacker of all time. We're talking with Wally Green. If you want to check out his website, you can go to whoiswallygreen.com, spelled exactly as it sounds, whoiswallygreen.com. Settle this once and for all in the minds of our listeners. What is the difference between table tennis and ping pong? All right. Okay. You must get asked this a lot. Oh, yeah. So, um, okay. I'm going to explain something. So most of the pro players, they like table tennis. And they say it's table tennis because ping pong is a game that's played in the basement. I 100% disagree with that. Um, I call it ping pong for a number of reasons. First of all, ping pong is just a more friendly, um, uh, a nicer word. It's more inviting. The number one country in the world by far is China. And China's never said the word table tennis, right? The next thing, what people don't know is that the original word was ping pong. The only reason ping pong was changed was because Parker Brothers copyrighted Mm. the name ping pong. They copyrighted the name. So that means that the U.S. Association would have to pay Parker Brothers Ah. to use the name ping pong. So, for example, you know, we have our club spin, right? So if we say spin New York's premier social ping pong club, we can be sued even till today. So we partnered with Stiga which is a sister company of Parker Brothers, and that way we can use that word ping pong. So the only reason it's people call it table tennis is because it was copyrighted. The word was copyrighted. So the original the term, ri- the yes. proper term is ping, ping pong. pong. Exactly. Um, so it's the same game. Same game. So I looked online when I got this question, and I saw some people were saying that in table tennis they play to 11 instead of 21. That's not true. No, no. It, it's so... So what happened was the game used to be 21 and then they changed the points to 11 because if you're watching three out of five games to 20, first of all, watching ping pong is a little bit difficult because no one understands what's going on with the ball. So if you don't understand what's going on with the ball, it's a hard sport to watch. And it's really hard to watch if it's three out of five, 21 points. That's long. So the ITTF decided they wanted to make the game shorter and quicker. And it does two things. It makes it more appealable to um, the average person. And also, it helps the lower-rated person have a little bit of a chance, right? Because now it's only 11 points. Both players have to start off right away because before you know it, the game's over. Uh, do you, Now, I know in the games to 21, you switch off five serves, five serves. But what do you do in the 11-point game? So in 11 points, you switch off every two serves. Every two serves. Right. And so now it's hard to get that roll with five points, you know, you serve five points, that's five zero. You're up a lot. And then also, right. you can figure out the lower opponent. By the time it's like 10-10, you would have figured them out already. And usually always the higher rated player will win. With 11 points, it's not the same. 11 points gives a lower rated player Interesting, interesting. But as far as the game goes, there's no difference between table tennis no. and ping pong. Give me a, a tip. You, you talk about watching the ball. I, like, you know, I play ping pong... I don't say a lot, but as often as I can, you know, my most valuable possession in my house is the, t- the ping pong table in my, in our basement. I play at least once or twice a week. 
I am at best an average player, at best, but I'd like to be an above average player. Give me a, a pro tip or and give the people listening a pro tip as to how they can get good. Is there one thing that somebody can do to change their game? Well, um, there is not one thing, but there are things that can change a game. Uh, I'll say one which probably most people don't know about. You always have to watch your opponent hit the ball. A lot of people, most people see the ball when the ball's pretty much halfway over the net. That's actually too late. You always have to watch. If you're playing against me, you have to watch when I contact the ball. If you always watch when I contact the ball, then you'll always be early to the ball. If you don't watch me contact the ball, then you're seeing the ball when it comes over the net. By that mm. time, it's too late. Interesting. That, that's a good one. Now, when did you turn pro as a as a table tennis pro or a ping pong pro? Wow. I think it was probably like two years after I started. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And this all due to this training that you got in Germany. It was the training I got in Germany. And then um, I was in the right place at the right time. And uh Rockstar Games um, approached me at a tournament. I was playing this kid from China, and uh, we were going, we we were getting nuts. I was making a lot of noise, talking trash. He was talking trash, and uh, Rockstar Games happened to be there scouting, and they came up to me and he was like, "Hey, uh, would you like to? Are you interested in making a ping pong game?" And it was the world's first ping pong game, and uh, I was like, "Yeah, Rockstar Games, Grand Theft Auto, of course." And so I made this ping pong game with them, and then um, I asked them to sponsor me. And then that's how I was able to travel around the world because Rockstar sponsored me and paid for it. How'd you end up in North Korea? <laughs> so um, I saw this tournament. Actually, there was a year um, that was I think it was 2015, and I uh, was I wanted to do something big, and and I didn't know what it was. Um, I had done some TV shows and some stuff like that, and I was like, I want to do something big through my sport. I don't know if you know. There's a very historical. Um, time in America, 1971, I think it was President Nixon, um, we have something called the ping pong diplomacy. And it was when America established sure. relations with China. And um, I was like, man, that's really cool. And actually, one of the guys that I used to practice with was on the team during that time. Wow. He's one of George, George Braithwaite, who's, who, who's passed away. Um, I played a lot with him. And so when I saw there was a, a tournament in North Korea. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I should go there to do a diplomacy for world peace, right? And um, I contacted pretty much everyone that I knew all around the world in all the major countries. And everyone said, no way, we're not going there. Like, you're going to die. They're going to kill you. You're not going to come back. It's going to be end of you. Uh, we're not going. So I said, okay, well, if you guys don't want to go, then I'll go. I'll go by myself. And that's what I did. I literally went by myself. Everything I handled by myself. Only American in the tournament? The only Westerner in the tournament. My Not goodness. American. The Westerner in the tournament. How did the North Koreans react to you? Oh, man. <laughs> so um, there was there was a point where I got to play a North Korean player, which was uh, really cool because I went there to do a diplomacy for world peace, but I had no plan. I didn't know how this was going to happen. Um, but I, luckily for me, I got to play at North Korea. And I remember when um, we were walking out to play our match, it was the umpire, North Korean umpire and me, and we're walking out. And there's like maybe 5,000 fans who are all North Koreans. And as I'm walking out, you could feel like the eyes on your body. Like you could feel the hate. Um, wow. Like you could feel this. It, it, it was really, really intense. The walk to the table was 
one of the most intense things I've felt because, you know, there's just so many people and, you know, they're taught that Americans are evil or, or, you know, we should be killed and et cetera. And, um, and you can feel that. And, and then, I mean, even when I played the match, like when I made the first couple of points, every time I made a point, they made it sound like this, mm, like this really hate, wow. really distasteful sound from everyone. So yeah, it was, it, it was pretty intense. You're not pretty, Planning a vacation back there anytime soon. Nah. <laughs> um, I've got to ask you, we're almost out of time, uh, but uh, you got to come back because uh, you have such a fascinating story and there's so many things that I want to ask you about. You are, I didn't even know you were the co-founder or co-owner of Spin. This is one of my favorite places to hang out in the world. It has been for a long time. I used to take every girl on a first date there. I'd take friends there. I'd take all sorts of folks there. And it was so great because if you liked ping pong, you could play ping pong. Uh, but if you don't, you can have drinks just at any bar and enjoy some nice popcorn. Uh, for people that haven't been to Spin, the one I've been to is on 23rd Third, Street, but yeah. is there more than one now? Yes, yes. So we have a, a couple of Across the country, then we have two in New York. So there's the one on 23rd Street and there's the one on 54. So explain the concept of spin to people. So um, what we did was we took uh, a party that we were having in our apartment called Naked Ping Pong. So the original party was Naked Ping Pong, and we took that and brought it. Is to... everyone naked in it? <laughs> naked was optional. Okay, got but it. but naked was the state of mind that we were in. Like live free, enjoy life, everything's great, have fun. And uh, we took that concept and brought it to spin. Um, we wanted to take a sport that's, you know, ping pong is a real serious sport. It's, 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 it's uh, not fun for people who don't play to be around people who actually play. So uh, we wanted to change that. We wanted to make the sport fun because everyone's played ping pong at one point or another. And so we wanted to make it fun. You know, we wanted to add drinks, you know, Add, add DJs, add events, and let people play ping pong, but at the same time, have fun and party. Uh, well, you've succeeded. I definitely recommend people check it out. Um, check out Wally's website as well, um, whoiswallygreen.com. Wally, thanks for coming in. I hope we can do this again soon. Anytime, anytime. If you want to comment uh, for 15 seconds, now's the time. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Talk Radio 77. WABC. This is the the co-anthem of The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, Thank you to Steve G. And uh, let's see, Steve G. and the Tagamac Band, a great song. Maybe we'll alternate this song and the Andy B. version. Both great songs, both celebrating a great show. Without further ado, it's an express edition of... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Frankie and Glendale. I'd like to wish a happy 140th anniversary to the Knights of Columbus. 
I urge all practicing Catholic gentlemen to join our order. For more info, go to join online kfc.org. Ray in Raritan. Yeah, the reason the world's so crazy, it starts with our leadership. We got crazy people uh, running our country is the problem. Thank you. All right. We got to actually end it there. I'm sorry we didn't get to everybody. Uh, we'll allow more time for this tomorrow. Ask Frank anything tomorrow. Come armed with your questions. We got some great prizes. The WABC Early News is next. Bernie and Sid from 6 to 10. Jesse Waters on the show today. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, Frank Moreno, good day. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.